Hello Survivors and welcome to Ration, a Metal Gear podcast by Resident Evil fans for Resident Evil fans. This is First Aid Spray bonus episode 8, and this time we dip back into the pile of shame pool to look at some tactical espionage action with the original 1998 Hideo Kojima classic, Metal Gear Solid. My name is Sinyak, you can just call me Sai, and joining me on the codec this week... Objective updates, on-mission encouragement, maybe a few secrets, and posing important questions about what lunch item would win in a fight from Steve Ward Games, it's Sherwin Matthews. <laughs> I would have better name than that. Something like Decoy Sherwin. De- like oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> sure, <laughs> Decoy Sherwin Matthews, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Took a one-year course on Chinese proverbs so that he could sit by the phone with his exercise books from Serial Box 64. It's Psycho Jordan. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hi, guys. <laughs> Supplying technical information about whatever you're holding, so please, dear God, keep your hands out of your pants. It's Boy Wonder Sniper Adam. <laughs> I have located binoculars. <laughs> And he can tell you all about the Metal Gear weapon, but mostly he's interested in it because it reminds him of his American animes about transforming robots. It's Fire Button's Liquid Steve Valance. Liquid Steve. <laughs> Liquid uh, Steve. Hello, everybody. The subject of this bonus episode, like all others, was voted on by our Patreon backers. Support the show now to not only keep us afloat, but to also create new content, select what that content is, and hear it a month before everyone else. Tears begin at just $1 a month. Check out patreon.com forward slash Pod for the full breakdown. So before we rock into things, uh, Metal Gear Solid is one of these games without files in it. Would you believe it? Uh, lots of spoken audio instead of reading audio so we've gone with the music selection for this podcast to break up the discussion so special shout out goes to captain meat shield and his cover of the encounter theme from the original mgs that is going to be plonked in this episode for your enjoyment and their channels in the description do go check them out there's uh, plenty of let's plays and lots of like metal covers of video game songs on there in general so this is part of shame episode two um, for those of you who haven't tuned in for the original, where we covered The Last of Us, um, each member of the team put forward a game to be voted on in a Patreon poll without sort of affiliating a game with a person, just kind of a blind grab, uh, and whichever wins we talk about, and the person who put it up gets to play it finally for the first time. Of course, Pile of sh- Shame being your pile of games that you, yeah, never finished or never even started, but you absolutely, you know, everyone talks about them or you really meant to get around to it. Whatever the case, we're ticking them off the list. Uh, so we've done The Last of Us and now we're at Metal Gear Solid. This is, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a handy winner. It was second place on the first pile of shame. So it handily won the second one. I think we all saw that coming. And it's also the only one where we kind of already know who's his pick already is because it's been alluded to in the podcast. In fact, it pretty much inspired the pile of shame series. Uh, but we'll get to that. So a little bit of introduction about Metal Gear first. So Metal Gear Solid was designed, written, produced, and directed by Hideo Kojima, and it's the third canonical game in the Metal Gear series, following the first game on MSX2 computers, which was followed by two different sequels, Metal Gear 2 Snake's Revenge, released by Konami outside of Japan only without Kojima's involvement, and Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake, the actual canonical follow-up. While there's an eight-year gap between Metal Gear 2 and Metal Gear Solid, the game began work in 1994 for the 3DO before the system was discontinued, and then focus swapped to the Sony PlayStation. The 
name, Metal Gear Solid, was to separate it from its lesser successful preceding games and to represent the game's jump to 3D. It released to critical acclaim. Perfect scores from the pla- from the press included OPM US and OPM UK giving it 10 out of 10. GamePro gave it 5 out of 5. Other scores were very high. IGM 9 out of 10. Uh, sorry, uh, IGN 9.8 out of 10 EGM 9 out of 10 GameSpot 8.5 out of 10 for Mitsu 37 out of 40 uh, won various Game of the Year awards PlayStation Game of the Year Best Sound Best Graphics Best Adventure Game various stuff like that sold over a million copies in its first year and I don't have the most up-to-date figures, but at least by 2009, which, you know, keeping in mind is now 11 years ago, stood at 7 million units worldwide, which is pretty impressive for a PS1 game. Um, has a hell of a legacy, of course, spawned many, many sequels, a massive franchise, and made Kojima a household name. So let's go around and sort of talk about our first interactions with Metal Gear as a franchise, and in particular Metal Gear Solid. Steve, uh, what was your first involvement with MGS? It's... This one's a weird one for me. It was a schoolyard thing. Like, I'm obviously, I'm the big Resi fan. And at school, even though I'm, like, what, 14 at this point, people are talking about, you know, this this new game. And I'm like, oh, yeah, what is it? And th- this uh, friend of mine who always had uh, an obstinate revulsion of the Resident Evil series literally thrust the copy in my face and said, I'm not going to tell you a thing about it. Play over the weekend and tell me how it'd be. And that's how it went, really. It was just a case of, like, you like Resident Evil so much, try this. And, um, yeah, it, it was a fun time. I genuinely enjoyed it. It was your first. I'm, I'm guessing with a lot of people, including yourself, was your your first Metal Gear. Yes, 100%. Yep. It's, uh, we, I had no idea of the press knowledge. Obviously, there's like this little backstory documents in the game that I didn't see until I'd already beaten it a couple of times. Mm-hmm. But yeah, played it over the weekend, gave it back, and then bought my own copy. It, it, it's, it's a fairly humdrum story, to be honest. <laughs> uh, Sherwin, what was your first interaction with Metal Gear Solid? Uh, so I didn't play it when it first came out. Uh, I uh, my, my first interaction was someone bought me for one of my birthdays. Um, the is it Special Ops, the blue cover version they did a little bit after that, um, which uh, is really you mean kind of a, low, a bunch. Yeah, it's basically a bunch of the tutorial missions more than anything else. Mm. Someone bought me that for my birthday, even though I'd never played Metal Gear Solid. I guess they thought it was a full game or whatever. Um, unfortunately for them, it had the wrong disc in the box. It actually had the original Metal Gear. Solid in the box. Uh, on the plus side, for me, excellent. It actually was the game, so it was something I could actually play. But it did mean that it did mean that I then spent about an hour when you get to the point in the game where um, where the commander says, "Yeah, okay, so look at the frequency on the back of the box, and then put that into the codec." So I'm basically sitting there going, "No, no, no," just slowly adjusting a dial, eventually trying to find the connection because these are the days before the internet, and that wasn't really a thing. <laughs> that's incredible um, yeah that, that's that, that's my interaction my first interaction with it uh jordan what's your mgs story well for me uh with a lot of ps1 experiences because i didn't have a ps1 until maybe about 2000 or so a lot of the experiences i had with you know some of the biggest games and some of the not so biggest games from that system were around other people's houses mm. whether they were friends whether they were relatives I'm pretty sure that I first played Metal Gear Solid through a demo at my cousin's house. And uh, he just, like, he had so many different demo discs. So I, I experienced, like, half the PS1 library just through demos. And that one stuck out with me. Like, it was um, it was stark to everything else because uh, it, it's, it's a game that is 
especially in that opening segment, if you are not initiated and you've not played any game like it, it can really kind of punish you and it can kind of shock you, but in a, in a way that makes you obviously compelled to kind of continue in much the same way that, that Resident Evil obviously is, is quite punishing. Survival horror is something <laughs> out of nowhere if you've never played anything of the sort before. Mm. And so it always it always stuck with me, but I don't know, for whatever reason, I didn't get my hands on it for, for years. I would pick up the uh, the other the other games the you know the sequels Metal Gear Solid two Metal Gear Solid three at two different intervals I tried playing those trying to see if I could just kind of jump in then because again they're both well regarded as well probably is by that point it's already quite deep into the story you really do need to kind of have that experience of Metal Gear Solid um, as the, as a springboard for the rest of the series finally got around to playing it proper in two thousand eight when Metal Gear Solid four was on the horizon and it was like uh, this is the perfect time to actually get in. If there's no other time other than now to get in to the series, and so that's when I jumped in and um, absolutely loved it. It was everything that I thought it was going to be from you know from the demo, mm. um, and uh, yeah, it, it remains one of my favorites. Fantastic, uh, Adam. What's your first Metal Gear Solid experience? For Metal Gear Solid, I was definitely waiting for its release. I was aware of it beforehand. Um, I think I had found out about it from, I couldn't tell you which magazine, maybe the, probably official PlayStation magazine back then. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was kind of on the hype train, um, for when this released, I was pretty much at the perfect age. I think I was about 16 or 17. So, um, it was, it was perfect timing for me to play this game being like super into video games at that point. Um, my first experience, though, is with the original Nintendo Metal Gear, which my nice. brother, had, nice. my older brother, had purchased because he was a huge fan of Aliens and it had Michael Bean on the front cover. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, I, I mean, he didn't know anything about it, obviously, because no one really did. But I remember that game. I was probably like eight or nine when I played that, and that was just punishing because I didn't understand it at all. Like the the whole kind of stealth mm. gameplay. So, and as Jordan was saying, if you're uninitiated um, with the idea, this is definitely a punishing game. <laughs> Metal Gear yes. Solid, if you if you try to run and gun it, which is, you know, as we'll get into it, it's definitely a very groundbreaking game for, for when it came out. Yeah, it's, uh, it's weird because in some ways... It sort of reminds me, and I guess this happened a lot around this era, but it reminds me of Final Fantasy VII because, yeah, it's a game with previous installments, but this is when it blew wide open. The jump to 3D, they're both considered sort of genre-defining, introduced the series to a lot of people. Um, so a quick succession of FF7 and Metal Gear and all that. was It's weird how that's all connected in my head, um, which kind of would have been sort of what I was playing-ish around the time. I mean, I was aware of Metal Gear Solid, um, from magazines and stuff like that, but I just never had the opportunity to play it, and that's why it was my pick. My first actual interaction with the series is MGS3, because it was new at the time, and I had a couple of friends that had, were already established fans of the series. Not that I had known that up until the MGS, until Snake Eater sort of was arriving, and I was like, oh, okay, I didn't know you were fans of this, and they were all excitedly talking about Snake Eater, and they played through it and whatever. And I was like, yeah, uh, I'm going to borrow that and give that a try. So 
that was my first Metal Gear game, which is, you know, not a terrible one because it's a prequel, so you you can kind of start there. Um, but in terms of the gameplay, it's very much, yeah. I imagine all the MGS games are like this. If you do just try and run straight in, it's going to end badly. Because I remember really struggling with MGS3. I made it through the whole game, eventually. Um, even if I had to do it, put it down several times along the way. Um, one such point in the game being where you fight the end. Uh, <laughs> purely by accident, you know, you leave the game and come back to it however much time later. And he's died of old age. Uh, that happened to me purely by chance. Didn't even know that was a thing. So that's my sort of strong memory of playing MGS3. Um, but this is my first time playing MGS1. Other than that, I have messed around with the Metal Gear. I, th I think it was the NES version, not the MSX version, uh, with a friend a few years ago because he was collecting NES games. I, I'm pretty sure that's the reason why, and he would just come around with stuff to try out. So we wound up playing Metal Gear for an afternoon. But yeah, finally, after all these years, I I can now say I have played uh, MGS1. And much like you said, Jordan, it, uh, it's it got a bit of a legacy to it. And for the most part, I kind of knew pretty much all the story the major beats of the plot already just because of its legacy and various parodies and stuff on the internet um and you actually get to play that out uh it's pretty cool we'll talk about the story when we get there i think most important is adam as you alluded to the kind of revolutionary gameplay um in fact adam what you start us off how do you feel about the the gameplay um what was it like for you adjusting to a much slower pace of game than perhaps you were used to at that time. Yeah, it definitely took some getting used to, but I just remember being blown away immediately right from the get-go. Mm -hmm. Just the sheer scope of what you can do in the game. You know, I was saying we, we did a stream of it um, on Boxing Day, and I was saying at that point that it seems average for a game nowadays to have that level of of kind of interactivity but at the time it was it was completely mind-blowing mm -hmm. um just the options and the additional cutscenes that you could get if you did certain things and um being able to play the game in several ways being able to enter the base in several ways um things like that were just not a normal thing in games right it's something i think we take for granted nowadays uh, but it was just, it, and, and uh, as Sherwin said, with the lack of the internet, you really felt that you were um, discovering things, you know? Mm. You were like, oh, I've been, you know, entering through this way the whole time because that's just how I did it the first time. And when you play a game, you expect that's the only way. And then you find something else. It's like a special little secret. <laughs> um <laughs> It's it's really I just remember just being completely engrossed by the gameplay and I know you know it's it's dated now and people have issues with the control somewhat and you know Snake can't throw a grenade to save his life but <laughs> but really it was just uh, just I don't feel like I'm gonna have anything bad to say about it because it just it was just a perfect gameplay experience for that point that mm. I first experienced it yeah i think um you hit something that i definitely wanted to talk about which was yeah the multiple ways of coming at things that like literally the first time that comes up is the second screen of the game i think it is where you're entering the base where yeah you there's two ways into that like immediately it's giving you choices like that 
Um, this isn't just going to be a kind of straight run thing. There are there are choices and ways to do things. Um, one of which being, and as I say, I knew a lot about this before I played it because of the massive legacy of the game and stuff like that. But when it gets to the part where you have to do some backtracking, and I thought, you know, the cardboard box is a, is a funny and useful thing. But it actually there are multiple ways to use it um, with the backtracking that kind of when I, I was looking up, okay, what's the quickest way to get back to this area that I need to because I couldn't remember my way. Oh, one, you know, just get in the truck as, as a certain box because it's got a delivery address on it and they'll take you there. <laughs> Even in 2020, <laughs> I was like, what? That's a brilliant and, idea. And, and what I really, really appreciate, like more than anything, is that the game never hold your hand through any of that mm. it doesn't tell you absolutely all of the all of these things that you can do that are like it never tells you mm. there's some there's probably things people still haven't found about it that if you do a certain you know right <laughs> like absolutely. it really is such in-depth like big brain galaxy brain thinking about like lay on the ketchup packet or hide under the bed <laughs> or just wait Mm-hmm. You know, or, or you know, punch, punch Meryl, put the box on, get the, the special yeah. edition piss box, so that you can yeah. outsmart the wolves. You know, stuff like that. Brilliant. Just yeah. Literally can... did not know about that until literally four days ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Um, Steve, how do you it feel was about me this? and Jordan that were just like Steve, get done. <laughs> Steve, how do you feel about the overall gameplay? I'm worried about Adam's kinks, but um, <laughs> generally, generally. I, it feels so, like, even now, all right, yeah, okay, we're going to say the word dated like a million times, but it still feels cool. Mm. Like, you know, the objective, the unobjective term that is cool, where you can just, like, sneak, you know, slink around, press yourself against a wall, peek around corners, knock people out. You uh, you know, in this game, you can't drag bodies off and hide them, which is, you know, because they just disintegrate into rations and ammo packs. But it's still really fun. Like, you don't realize it at first, but you can literally dick C4 onto soldiers' backs. Let them walk up and then blow them up next to the mates, taking them all out. Like, <laughs> what, what, what game lets you do that? It's just insane. And uh, and then obviously, yeah, you can get you can get weed on in a cardboard box, the the chagrin of your own psyche. But no, I think uh, it's it's weird. The, the, I, I don't know why many games don't try and ape its inventory system. Well, there's only like there's basically two active slots, isn't there? It's like the item mm. and then the weapon. Uh, but it's so direct and straightforward. Like uh, I appreciate that the fact that there's so many different approaches to resolving puzzles in gameplay. Like some some items are overpowered, like say your thermal goggles and whatnot, and they uh, replace the need for a mind detector or you know the health sapping cigarettes. But there's lots of ways to approach most problems, except for like you know the big the big obstacles like a uh, electric powered gas death floor that you have to shoot with a remote control missile. Um, and I appreciate that. Considering in 1998 it had never been done before, mm. I think we hadn't even reached like um, Tenchu yet, had we? So we can't like you know approach stealth in a very, uh, I want to say almost free roam manner yet. Yeah. So yeah. The fact that this was a thing then, I'm, I can't put myself truly back in my own shoes, but I would imagine it still blew my mind enough because I mean, like I said, I literally bought this game, like beating it from being lent to a friend, and then smashed it for a good while. Yeah, I mean the inventory system. It's it's funny because 
I've heard various reasons why the PlayStation inventory, uh, PlayStation controls are the way they are with triangle, circle, X and square, you know, being yes and no. And I think the square is meant to be a map and the triangle is meant to represent sort of perspective and stuff like that. And MGS just handled it perfectly, like you say, because the X is sort of like the legs and that's how you're going to crouch and uncrouch. The triangle puts you into first person, so it is the head, and then you've got your two arms on the controls. So once you get your head around that, immediately you're like, okay, I understand that. And the only really, whilst I thought, you know, they are clunky, and I remember when I went into this, I was like, okay, this is going to be clunky, because I remember playing MGS3 when it came out and thinking this is clunky, and I was struggling with it for a while. Um, but once you you know, get a couple of hours in, and you sort of pick up the pace of how to do things, uh, you can pull off some some cool stuff. Uh, without too much issue and it feels good to do whereas like early on you might be like scuffing around with various grenades and being like oh where's this and that oh my inventory what have I got what am I holding once you get uh, into it and you can pull off some some cool stuff uh, yeah feels good feels rewarding definitely um, Sherwin what's your general thoughts on the on the major part of the gameplay do you know, I came to it um, a little bit later than everybody else because, as I said, I, I didn't get it when it first came out and only ended up getting it by complete accident. Um, but by that point, what's interesting is the, the gameplay didn't have as much impact with me um, as the rest of you guys have mentioned, purely because at that point I loved Tenchu Stealth Assassins. Right. And I'd played a whole bunch of Tenchu. Um, so I already had that idea of that um, sort of roaming around kind of a stealth game sort of approach. So that wasn't really anything dramatically new there. And the same again with, you know, I'd played Resident Evil, Silent Hill, and so on. So I was familiar with the way that you could approach things in different ways, get different cutscenes or whatever, and that would change your experience. But what I did really appreciate with this game was the small details. It is the sort of small breath coming out of a soldier's like mouth when he breathes mm. or whatever in the Arctic area outside. It is the dripping, like a drip effect on the water or whatever. It is the small detail that, you know, cigarettes and they'll sap health, that sort of thing. It, that sort of thing was, you know, and again, exactly what you guys are talking about in terms of the small little details like, you know, um, getting pissed on or the box or whatever else, that sort of thing really, that is an extra sort of level. And the same again with the actual story arc, which is the most resonant part that stuck with me, uh, for better and worse, as we'll probably go into. But um, it is something where I remember playing this game and kind of being quite enthralled, not by the slightly clunky controls, which were annoying every so often, and not by the sort of stealth part of sort of stealth, you know, of kind of very sneaking, sneaking around different locations and so on. It was more so much I wanted to experience the story. I mm. really wanted to see what happened next, and that's the bit that actually kept me going. The point where you get to the DARPA chief, for example, at that stage, that was enough to get me hooked, and I'm like, okay, this is awesome. I'll carry on playing this game now, and that's I, I really appreciate that. Plus. As as we all know, there's a there's a certain part of me that really enjoyed the kind of um, Roy Campbell, Colonel Troutman kind of thing that was going on, which was really cool. I liked being Rambo on his secret mission. That was kind of, that was kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh, pretty clear through line to to film. That's the whole Kojima thing, and we'll definitely talk about that. Yeah. Uh, even the simple stuff. Um, and the way that it looks when it's being done is what's cool. I always just think about the sort of camera of Snake pulling himself against a wall and then knocking on the wall to get attention. Something so simple, but it just, even today, it looks really cool. Um, future stealth games, I had played, obviously, before this, MGS3, which expands a lot on what the original game and the sequel did. And Splinter Cell came out before I touched the Metal Gear series, which handles stealth in a really interesting way with light and dark and stuff like that. Um, 
So obviously, in terms of that, this is the stealthing is has been done better since. Um, but I still appreciate this game coming at it looking sort of like a puzzle game. Uh, it's funny that it's called tactical tactical espionage action to me. Because, okay, yeah, there is more action than the other games that came before it because 3D is going to be virtual, virtue of the costume jump. But, uh, yeah, I feel this more like a puzzle game than an action game for the most part. It's just about getting through one area, if you can, without making any alerts or quickly rectifying that mistake if you do. Uh, Jordan, what's your general overview of the gameplay? Well, I think... Uh... It's interesting that you you brought up the comparisons to Final Fantasy VII in certain respects, right? because to me, um, especially in that period of gaming, 1997 to 1998 or so, um, these were not necessarily brand new experiences, but they were they were brand new experiences to the wider audience. And I think, um, you know, just like how Final Fantasy VII is typically a lot of people's uh, first experience of, of an RPG, uh, at least in the West. Mm. Um, I think that was the case for Metal Gear Solid and, and you know, stealth games. I also, uh, I believe that it not only had like, you know, one or two demos, like almost everybody that I have talked to about Metal Gear Solid first experienced it through a demo, whether yes. it was with a magazine or, you know, a, a freebie given away and another kind of promotion and stuff like that. Um, it was obviously it was a great way for for people to kind of get that first taste of of stealth gameplay and try and figure out whether or not it was something for them. And I think obviously for most people, it was it was it, it was something that was marketed in a manner through the gameplay um, that kind of showed a, a sort of a deliberate intention. Mm-hmm. This isn't a gimmick. This isn't something that you can maybe skirt around with a game. This is something that ultimately uh, you have to grow accustomed to. Because you look at that health bar and it's it's pathetically small, um, you know. Trying to actually fight with guards often seems laboured and fruitless. You're not underpowered, but to actually um, expend the time um, to, to to face off against the guards, it, it either leads to a game over or it leads you uh, weakened when it it comes to the time to actually face a boss. Or you know, mm. a, a sort of a tougher gauntlet, you know, like uh, you know, going up against like armed security cameras and all that kind of stuff, which this game has. Um, one of the things that stood out to me about the game was the fact that you know, movement has a consequence. Uh, you know, even from like the first area of the game, uh, you can you can leave footprints in the snow. You know, walking over puddles will alert guards. Uh, you really have to be aware of your surroundings. And for that reason, you then do want to kind of cling to walls and, uh, you know, really kind of have a think about your next move. Uh, the over the uh, over the head uh, camera, you know, looking down on what is more typically a sort of a two day map mm. uh, kind of helps with that strategy so that you, you do have a little bit of breathing space to kind of, First of all, see the kind of patterns um, that the, uh, the the patrol routes of the guards uh, and and a, and a route through um, w- without obviously coming into contact, uh, you know, with any with anybody that can obviously take you down. But um, 
yeah, it's it, it's obviously it's very it's very distinct because the, there's obviously there's there's areas in Shadow Moses where you don't actually have to go. Uh, you know, the, there's rooms and segments which are more optional, but doing so gets you extra gear, mm. um, which can be really important for later for later down the road. But that was my biggest takeaway. There was just that that movement had consequence. That was just not something I was used to in in m- most games before Metal Gear Solid and in a lot of games since then as well. It's sort of, you know, it's more, especially with like, you know, the advent of sandbox games, it was like, no, you can go anywhere. Uh, in Metal Gear Solid, you can go anywhere, but it often has a price. And, you know, that that really stood out to me. Yes, well said, I think. I, um, I went longer in the game than I probably was meant to without the thermal goggles and had to go and find them. Uh, because yeah, they were in a room that I just forgot to go into or didn't realize was there, something of the sort. So yeah, it's it's kind of funny that you mentioned that. Um, and also on the subject of demos, I happened to catch this while I was sort of doing a bit of research. According to Wikipedia, uh, and this has got a citation, prior to its North American release, an estimated 12 million demos for the game were distributed in that the year of release, which is quite a lot indeed so it definitely put it on a lot of people's radar whether or not they actually went and played the game it's one of those things that was like and upon release it was definitely like a big title and snake went up there with all these characters i remember at the time kind of like seeing this uh bandana wearing no-eyed soldier guy (laughs) and the logo everywhere um which is funny to think because kojima himself said that they didn't really expect it to do particularly well I looked into a little bit of sort of um, making of documentaries and stuff like that, and you can see them putting together the world of this game using Lego um, to map out all the areas and having a little camera connected to a TV so they could see what the player was going to see, and they would map that out all before they actually made it properly in the game so they could have a a fully fleshed out idea of what this area that was that they were crafting. It wasn't just a series of rooms and levels put together. It's It's a proper building and... Yeah, I really like that the that sort of way they're coming at it from sort of a realistic perspective and and sort of vetting these ideas before they actually get right down and doing them. Um, so yeah, we talked a bit about the sneaking, but it's funny because I've got a note here that's I think we talked about this maybe in the Code Veronica episode we did. We talked about how Resident Evil struggles a little bit with boss fights. That's not really the the best part of Resident Evil, and sometimes, in fact, it's kind of the reverse. The best part is really the more with the exploring. But I kind of... Yeah, it's weird, because MGS is very different to that. I feel like it does boss fights in a really, really fun way. I talked about moving around and, and that kind of stuff being more like small puzzles as you go but this is where all the action is is packed in various boss fights that i have to say i enjoyed with cyborg ninja uh the sniper wolf fight even if you can cheese it vulcan raven was kind of a pain but it was enjoyable nonetheless uh didn't really like the metal gear rex one putting it lightly that one uh, i think i might have lost some hair over that one i don't know i just really really struggled uh getting the the timing down getting the positioning right with that one but overall it's really like unlike resident evil the separation of the sneaking and the action really works in metal gear's favor i think um anyone got any thoughts on the the actually kind of like a almost like a whole roster of boss fights it kind of reminds me of the rogues gallery of batman kind of like here's a selection of dudes that kind of lines up for you at the beginning of the game any thoughts anyone it is it is very much like that and yeah it's it's sort of intended to really kind of bring out the personality of those 
those characters. Um, I mean, I would I would say obviously one of the most memorable boss sequences for that time. Maybe not so much now, but obviously Psycho Mantis, the right. the, the battle with Psycho Mantis, um, the you know the subversion on on you know typical kind of control. It's it's been sort of parodied, imitated. Uh, mm-hmm. ad nauseum now in, in the industry but this was uh, you know one of the kind of trailblazers with this kind of um, aspect of the game exceeding uh, even the screen or your own controller like having to actually you know get down and start to interact with the system again in the midst in the midst of something like that um, it's it's a it's a big surprise like you know it's you know there's so many uh, different flourishes throughout the game that um, are, are an experiment with the gameplay system that it has, you know, plus the typical game experience that people have. Um, that just about all of the all of the bosses are memorable, but that one in particular mm. obviously sticks in a lot of people's minds, and um, it's it's understandable why. You've got to make sure, of course, that if you are playing it, that you have some save files on your memory card. And maybe use a controller that has rumble. Otherwise, a lot of the impact gets lost. I remember playing this, obviously, on the PS3 back in 2008. And I had a six-axis controller, which, if anybody remembers, the six-axis, for whatever reason, had no rumble. And um, sticking that controller down and then remembering that it didn't have any rumble was one of the most pathetic experiences I've had in gaming. (laughs) Because it's, it's, it's just no, nothing happened, um, but yeah, it's that's like the one. Like a mantis and go weird flex, but okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But yeah, that's the one that sticks with me the most. Yeah, it's it's one that you talk to people now, um, especially younger people that have no idea, and they're like, "Wow!" Even still, people are like, "Well, wow, that's so cool." When I played it, you know, I I played it with my wife around, and she'd never played the game or really seen it that much before. She had no idea um, about the sort of save data thing when I told her. I didn't get any fun save data ones, unfortunately. I did get the rumble, but I didn't get any save data because my <laughs> my PS1 memory card is just all Resident Evil games, unfortunately. So there's no Konami in there to pull from. But nonetheless, uh, that, that's that's the case of it. Steve, any standout boss fights for you? This, this one's a weird one because I feel like they're all in their own little way iconic now. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, even something as simple as the revolver ocelot fight, which is just running around a square room while a dude tries to kill you with a re- bouncing revolver, you know. Uh, but for me, actually, I think it may well be your hated boss fight of Metal Gear Red. <laughs> like, because it's hard to pay off on building up this death machine for so mm-hmm. long, and you have to trawl over this thing for a good thirty minutes before you fight it, and then it is a proper throwdown. And if you don't like do your codec calls for a bit of advice, you could be a bit. You know, a bit struggling with its machine guns, its rockets, its ray, its ray gun. You know, it's a pretty daunting task. Uh, and then you just realise, yeah, just run at it when it's firing rockets, and then run away when it isn't. Uh, and belt it in the radome. But until you know that, it's an ordeal. It's massive. The music's bombastic, and all the while you've got like liquid completely chatting nonsense at you, which is something you hadn't had at the time, where bosses literally are like, you know. Want a better term? Crap talking you the entire time. Mm. It yeah, used to be like I, some big, oblo- you know, strange shaped monster just blasting things. Or has got a glowing eyeball. I mean, I love Birkin as much as anybody, 
Well, he wasn't a very chatty fella, was he? <laughs> um, whereas these are all quipping one-liners. Mm. Like even even the more cut away, I want to say more cardboard cutouty bosses like Vulcan Raven. But even then, that's like a really tense, almost stealthy battle in a freezer. They're yeah. all yeah. I really enjoyed the nice second bit of DNA. I really enjoyed the. The sort of cat and mouse Vulcan Raven fight with the with the oh. missiles and stuff. The tank one was the mm. one that I struggled with, but the actual boss fights is, is good fun indeed. Um, Sherwin, any stand up boss fights that you remember? I think you guys have already hit the nail on the head, really, by saying they're all memorable in their own way. Mm. I think for me, again, the the big thing, the big hit that Metal Gear had with me was was the theme, the whole thing. Whether you're sort of sneaking in outside of the base, that very kind of all cold tones, everything feels mm. very Cold Warry kind of arctic kind of level that, that sort of feel to it and i think the bosses are no exception i mean it's and the psychomantis one is an obvious obvious one the, the point where it breaks the fourth wall with you is is really tremendous and actually makes you feel like okay so this this is actually stepping outside of the game and that and that innovation we've already hinted in in other areas as well that's really what happens when you get a bunch of super talented people kind of all sitting around going okay so how can we do something really fun Mm. and I, that that was that was awesome but even the, the theme of the rest of them i mean sniper wolf is the other one that sticks out to me i remember i remember playing that and kind of really thing really sort of dragged into this kind of idea that there's you know what the fight is in terms of the actual exchange between the two yeah you know, how much that feels thematic to it and even something like revolver ocelot which feels intimate but also old school it kind of feels like it's no thrills it, it really is kind of this simple kind of um this very simple thing but that fits what the character is you know compared to any of the other bosses right. and then again back to back to your uh your favorite slash nemesis whichever way you want to go um you know even vulcan even like even again like you feel like vulcan is stomping around and it just feels like this heavy duty rhino thing is coming towards you that you really are trying to avoid it just had this amazing feel to what you're you know just trying to dodge away from things um mm. really really thoroughly enjoyed the theme and the tone of what all of they were you could tell lots of thought went into how do we make these how do we make these encounters really um exemplify kind of what the character is and kind of give them their own feel but also really immerse the character in all the flavor sorry the player in all the flavor of what's going on here and i think they hit that really really well absolutely uh adam any standouts for you all of them uh, <laughs> <laughs> in all honesty i think part of the reason the game is so loved is because almost every character in it is somewhat iconic. Mm. Um, there's, you know, there's kind of memes and stories about almost every character in the game. Um, they did a fantastic job of creating a set of, of bosses that are all kind of stand out in their own way. None of them feel samey in any way when you when you fight them. Mm. Um, I just think they did a great job. Obviously, you know we've all said it, Psychomantis. It it's like the enduring boss fight of of the game, and and not necessarily for the fight, but yes, for the exactly sort it. of lead up yeah. to the fight. You know, which is funny because everyone's like, "Oh, Psychomantis," but none of them are actually talking about the fight. They're just talking about the gimmick, mm. which isn't a bad thing. It's great. It's awesome. Um, for me, you know, I love Revolver Ocelot. I love um, it's a simple fight, but it's just cool the way, you know, the the kind of standoffishness between the two of you. I love the environment, all of like the, the trip wires around 
you know, um, it's just really cool. Um, I'm in your camp of not enjoying the Rex fight as much. I know Steve <laughs> likes it. Um, but yeah. It's like fighting uh, big things, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the ninja fight is great. Cyborg Ninja mm. um, is a super fun fight. And again, with, with the the kind of Metal Gear way, there's a few ways to come at that fight as well. You can use chaff grenades to stun him. You can use thermal vision to see him when he's invisible. There's like a bunch of different cool things you can do. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I enjoy pretty much all of them. Yeah, I think... I would say that's pretty accurate for how I feel. I, I, I enjoyed all of them. The tank was a struggle, and the final, yeah, the final Metal Gear X fight you know, can get in the bin. <laughs> <I> just, <laughs> the second phase, I just, I don't know what it was. I str- even when it's like, okay, if you just stand underneath him, he can't get you. He's like, yeah, but he spends all his time spinning around and trying to stand on me. I didn't have enough rations. That was my true issue. Anyway, ramble aside. Um, moving on a little bit from gameplay, we sort of talked about the stylistic approach of this game. And uh, we sort of mentioned film a little bit. And there is very much, and this is true of Kojima in general, um, it's very much a marriage of his love for cinema with video games. And that is like instantly recognisable from the opening cutscene right to the end. Um, I think, what are we at now? 22 years after this game... I was still... I mean, visually, obviously, it's going to look a little bit worse for wear. Um, But from a direction standpoint, just, yeah, I was still very, very impressed because a lot of games of the era, they didn't really do any cinematic-y, swoopy stuff when you're doing just generic cutscenes, really. It's a lot of mid-shots of characters talking to each other in the occasional close-up. But this one is... it, It feels like there is a cameraman in the game, doing all these cool, crazy things, swooping around the characters, doing over-shoulder shots, just constantly, every shot is something interesting to look at. There's no just, this shot just exists for the sake of getting this information across while these two guys are having a conversation. It's all like that, and it's it's weird because it feels like a, I don't know, 10-hour film because of it. Um, even all this time, I was really impressed with the the general direction yeah okay the visuals are a little bit scratchy but i kind of love the ps1 look and the the polygonal look um steve what's your what's your thought on the the visuals and the direction i was going to pick up on this you know this is 1998 Mm. and we've got animation okay their heads wobble when they talk that's a bit weak but the actual animation movement of the characters and stuff there's some scenes where you can actually see the emotion on these flat polygonal bodies despite the fact they are literally just like, you know, barely textured shapes in the shape of a lab coat and a dude in a muscle suit. Um, like Sniper Wolf's death scene, when we did it on the stream, I had to keep, I went back and watched it a few times for this podcast. It's still like stunningly animated for the time, mm. especially like it blows our beloved Resi out of the water. I'm sorry. It, yeah, like, it you know, does. Yeah, you know, it you, does. You've got, you've got Snake and, um, like, you know, Otacon literally conveying their different like emotional pitches of grief and stuff. And, it's not just a flat static shot. You've got constant cuts of different angles, just like you said. Like um, You've got pan-ups, you've got swooping shots. This is stuff you don't see at this point in video games. I think that's part of the reason why it's held up so well. Um, obviously, as you said, Kojima's love of film shines through. Yeah, because he's, he's literally just probably pinching shots left and right from all the films. Almost certainly. But 
it works like mm. f- phenomenally so even the first person stuff where it forces you it's always like you know there's always enough little bit of interest you can't quite see everything but enough to get your interest like uh, when you're being interrogated on the table or you're looking through the vents um yeah i've got literally zero complaints which is pure fanboy nostalgia ringing through i i i totally admit but yeah I, I, it, it's weird that recent retread is like showing me just how ahead of the time it was or a trendsetter it was going to be. Hmm. I um when I was playing this, there's a portion close to the end of the game where it asks you to swap disc. And I and I again I was with my wife and I was like, Oh, that's funny. I figured we were pretty close to the end of the game. And she said it's probably for all those cutscenes taking up a lot of the disc. Oh. I mean she's half right, you know, because there there's there's some. There's a lot of audio. But there isn't any cutscenes, really. You know, the only cutaways you get is to live action footage, which is kind of nice and different. Um, it's an inspired idea to cut to actual real life footage of stuff like uh, scientific labs and all that. But I think the absolute best thing from a visual perspective of this game is there's no cutscenes. Everything is done in engine in 1998, of all things. Okay, yes, yeah, cutscenes probably could have helped, possibly, the look of the game. You know, back then they were quite ropey. Um, but for the immersion of the game and feeling like a film, every game now doesn't, you know, you don't really get cutscenes, full full rendered, you know, motion video anymore. Everything tends to be done in engine these days. Metal Gear Solid was doing it in 1998. That just like, when I stood and thought about that, I was like, oh, yeah, there hasn't been any, basically. Like, absolutely love that. And yeah, okay, because the, the expressionless models are a bit silly, but it really does help everything sort of, it glues everything together, the sort of, the lack of FMVs. Uh, Showing, how do you feel about the, the direction and the look of the game? Yeah, I think Steve was per- was very much spot on. I think um, it, it's worth, it's worth obviously going, let's go back to that time. Mm. That was, you know, we could talk about expressionless faces and that sort of stuff, but that was, perfect for what the time was no one expected absolutely, any different. yes yeah and it, it absolutely was something where you're right the body language and and kind of everything else about the game in terms of you know once again the theme and the tone and so on really really made that feel perfectly correct you know really 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 smashed it out of the park the shots the way that the actual the way the actual thing worked and the actual play out and the immersion was really really spot on it was something where you started playing this game, you immediately got dragged in. Just like, you know, you're trying to break into the bases, you're breaking into the game. And now you feel hmm. like you're sneaking around, you're sneaking around the game, trying to find out its secrets and kind of find out what the game is. You're almost actively participating in it, especially when the game then breaks the fourth wall. It's you versus your PlayStation. Yeah, you know, that's, that's kind <laughs> of the feel for it. And it's it's got this wonderful, wonderful feel to it, which I think really sort of did it. it just a side note, it's interesting. It's, if I have one one criticism about this game because um and it's worth pointing out i think this is of all of the metal gear games we've seen that i think for me this is the perfect one this is this is the game which which i think which gets it just perfectly right in terms of the balance of of scenes where the player can't actually interact or can't actually play versus has to sit there and watch sort of scenes play out and so mm. on or has to sneak around versus actual combat scenes <clears throat> the feel and the the thought that's gone into it i think this is the perfect game of all of the series but um, if there is one criticism I have is I do remember plugging in, yeah, okay, oh, switching disc, exactly the same thing as as what Mrs. Sai came up with, which is, yeah, it's because we've just gone through a whole bunch of this thing. There's an awful lot. So now I'm switching over game, much as you did with any of the Final Fantasy titles. And that second disc is painfully short. Mm-hmm. Um, it just It's just really, really short, which felt very anticlimactic. I mean, obviously, the story is building up to what it's building up to. There's no... 
it doesn't necessarily feel like there's anything there, but I do distinctly remember going, all oh, right, okay, I was expecting it to be quite a long disc because I'm used to these other titles which do the same thing. So then switching over to that just felt right. kind of a bit, this is this is feels a little bit slow. But then at the same time, I don't think that's necessarily to the game's detriment now. The game feels well-paced for what it is. That's more just an expectation thing or entitlement thing of I'm used to games having a sort of roughly the same sort of size discs. Mm-hmm. So that's just purely a, a potential hardware thing versus anything else. But no, it's 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 exceptionally well put together. It's it's really well and um, it's really efficiently done. And I think you're right in terms of thinking about how there's no cutscenes. Cutscenes for me, when you go to sort of you know program Def and V or whatever, really just break you out of any immersion in the game. Yeah, they 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 rip you out as much as it is when you're Leon running through the sewers and get eaten by an alligator or whatever else, and you realise, oh wow, I was holding my breath because I'm trying desperately not to die throughout mm-hmm. all of my Resident Evil experience until that point. As soon as you die, you kind of go, tension's left my body. Okay, let's start back up again. And then you have to sort of slowly build to that. It's the same with same with cutscenes for me. You have to be very careful in terms of how you actually do them and not jumping away to something that's sort of, you know, completely different in terms of format and you kind of sit down and kind of relax, for me, is perfect. So I can't fault it at all. Uh, Jordan, how do you feel about this game, visually speaking? Well, I consider it, you know, Easily the best-looking game on the PS1. Um, one of the best-looking games of the generation. And I wouldn't even say that that's necessarily coming from a point of nostalgia. Because, yes, while I did play this around the time that it came out through you know, a demo, that wasn't really the best representation of what the, the visuals were going to be offered throughout the rest of the game. Mm. And to be quite honest, I just had a different kind of appetite for visuals back then anyway. It's taken... A long time for me to actually kind of come to this consensus, but every time I come back to Metal Gear Solid, I just have a look at the the, the technical details of it, uh, combined with the console that it's on. Um, I, I I'm probably maybe a little bit more critical of you know PS1's visuals and uh, technical power than maybe uh, you know some other people are, um, and that might just be coming from a bias that. <laughs> I grew up with N64, and I mean, that ain't no peach either. But still, uh, there's there's certain things that can often hold PS1 games back. You know, it has uh, you know a very prominent issue with uh, texture warping, um, and, and dithering is often a trademark to uh, you know offer offer some kind of rudimentary shading technique. Uh, typically, these are you know things that I don't really like in games, or they are things that can't be circumvented properly. But I think that, uh, you know, Kojima and, and, his, and his team were able to get something quite marvelous out of the the technical side of the PS1 to kind of produce something that is so drenched in detail. Mm. Um, yeah, and The texture warping in particular is not kind on, you know, heavy detailed textures. And, you know, bear in mind, we're going down to the, pixel level here so you know nothing can be wasted and nothing is wasted with this game um you know some some of the uh environments that you're going to be uh moving around in over the course of a few hours uh just don't have any points where they feel bare um it's it's obviously it's contained within that resolution uh you can't necessarily uh retain all of that detail if you were to Prez this through an emulator or you know or different ports or stuff like that but i think you know as that experience especially on a crt it looks 
you know, just fantastic. It, it, you know, there's not really any flaws that kind of come out. And it makes you forget about the lack of detail to the faces. And it's just mm -hmm. so funny because it's a game that obviously has so much talking, not just in codec, but in those uh, th those cutscenes, those in-engine cutscenes, of course. Um, and it, it never distracts. The The game is is treated in a very cinematic fashion, in a responsibly cinematic fashion, and um, it, it knows what it, it knows what it wants to be. And uh, you know, you mentioned you mentioned about the fact that it feels like there's a cameraman there, um, which is a, a perfect way of describing it because uh, the shots feel organic mm. and they they feel in relation to a story, not necessarily just a device for progressing the plot, as you might get in a typical game. Uh, this game could have easily have been that the story functions happened uh, using the game's regular camera, just overhead with some text boxes. <laughs> that would have passed. That, mm. would, that, that would have been fine for the time that it came out. There was nobody that was demanding this kind of level to it. But the, uh, the, the camera shots are, are beautiful. They're fantastic. And I mean, I've, I've often felt that uh, Metal Gear Solid has a lot in common with the film Die Hard. Um, and uh, in, in that film, there are just so many claustrophobic shots where it's close up uh, on the characters. It's really kind of emphasizing the point that, uh, uh, you know, John McClane is, is stuck in one location mm -hmm. and he's limited to where he can move and, and, how, and, and how he can, you know, f face everybody. Uh, and that's, just, that's the same thing with Metal Gear Solid. The, the, the camera shots used really make you feel like uh, you're you're right in the lion's den with with Shadow Moses. You've got you've got a long way to go. You've come quite far. And you don't really know where it all ends, even though this is all just taking place on an island. Um, entering every room uh, and, and you know the cutscenes that follow make it feel kind of harrowing because you don't know exactly where you're going to go. So, uh, yeah, I I don't want to call it perfect because I will really be showing my fanboy then, but I I do think that it it still stands up now. Mm. You have to obviously look at it through a particular lens. Uh, as, as I say, you couldn't necessarily take all these assets and just up-res them, and it's magically the same. It obviously isn't. But for, for 1998, it was, it was blowing things out of the water. And, and yeah, just uh, what has obviously come since in gaming is in part in credit to, mm -hmm. to Metal Gear Solid and, and what it changed about the game. I love the term responsibly cinematic. It's actually, yeah, Ed, you're right. It's not, well, we can do anything we like with the camera. You know, it's it organic is the other word you wonderfully said. Um, Adam, are you going to show your fanboyism? Is, is this perfect visually for you? This is a masterclass <clears throat> for me in camera work. It's the... Something that I didn't appreciate when I first played through it because of my age. Mm -hmm. But the I feel like the camera's almost perfect in this game. Both in cutscene and in-game. Right. It creates such an experience. You know, I think when people talk about Metal Gear Solid, um, it's a it's a for want of a better word, because it's a, a bit of a pun, it's a solid game. Mm -hmm. Um it's it's definitely super solid, but I think what makes the game the the kind of phenomenon that it is 
is the art direction and the cinematography of it. It's just, yeah, it's perfect for me. Like there are so many, like in, in cut scenes, you know, there are not for, not, not a bad term. There are so many cuts, um, but just in such a good way. You know, yeah. like there'll be parts where when you're like talking to the DARPA chief um, and he gives you the key card, he's telling you about how you can use it on doors and it cuts to a door, but then it cuts again to directly in front of the door. It's just like a little thing like that. You know, it's not just mm. here's a door. It's just these little cinematography moments that are so good. And, you know, my problem with later Metal Gear games is just the amount of excess right. when it comes to cutscenes and stuff. This game does feels like it does it so perfectly because, yeah, it does it in the in-game engine, which is perfect, and it works that way because of the masterful use of camera. Um but it gives you enough in between each sort of gameplay moment as well. You're never sitting there for hours just waiting to play. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's so cleverly, for want of a better word, filmed. Um, it really is immersive. I'm, I'm all about it.
visual, the companion of audio, this is the one that I have the least to say about, really. I don't I don't really know what to say. Uh, quite simply, top to bottom, the voiceover is great. Uh, yet again, unprecedented, really, levels of quality. I've got no complaints from anyone, really, on the cast that I can think of. The sound effect library, I mean, it's all iconic. You, <laughs> there are people... Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that probably haven't played a Metal game and know the alert sound at the very least, if not call sound and stuff like that. The only other thing is the the soundtrack is not overly expansive. Um, I'd feel like the boss theme gets a little bit repetitive by the end, perhaps, is an argument. Um, But for the most part, it's very well utilised and the music itself is brilliant. That's basically all I have to say about audio. Um... So to that end, Adam, do you want to carry on talking about the game from an audio perspective? Absolutely. Um, I I agree with you. I think that the soundtrack itself is probably the most subdued part of the game. Hmm. But I think that a good reason for that is it's doing so much visually. This game is doing so much visually that it needs to kind of settle somewhere. And I think the soundtrack mm. is pretty subtle in that regard. As for the the rest of the audio, like you said, the voices are all top notch. Absolutely great voice work. You know, some of the lines are a bit eh, but um, you know, for a a Japanese game to 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 translation is sure, is really true. well done. Yeah. Um, you know, often you get hiccups in those kinds of things where you don't have like a a great translation or whatever but this does a great job um the sound effects are iconic like you said i mean i don't know how many people have the alert tone as their ringtone or message tone but it's probably still a lot of people (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah like you said there's not a great deal to say about the soundtrack but i don't think that's a detraction on the game Mm, i think that it you know it's something that is understated that just really helps it because i feel like sometimes when you get a really bombastic sound like we love the resident evil soundtracks they're quite bombastic but it creates like a fantasy type feel yeah whereas this game to me feels more realistic Mm -hmm. and i think it's because of the lack of like a bombastic soundtrack you know when you're running around you hear the tapping of your feet you're not hearing like some kind of like amazing orchestral thing. I think it draws you in more because of that. Less is more. Mm-hmm. I think I've read that Kojima said the only thing really, well, the main thing that he wanted to improve on in the sequel was the audio. So obviously he felt sort of similarly in the, in the sense that it was probably the lacking part, but I would agree it's, it's definitely not to the game's detriment at all. Um, Steve, what are your thoughts on the audio department? So outside of like the your more iconic stuff, like you know the best is yet to come, the main theme, mm. the boss theme, I actually kind of really dig the more atmospheric background tracks. I know a lot of people have just literally said that it's it's serviceable, but it, it takes you back to like your more eighties action films, like one of the bigger influences, like Escape from New York or Die Hard. You know, it's, it's those kind of like ambient backing tracks which are designed literally just to facilitate. But there's, there's just something a little bit catchy about them, like. Uh, I was listening to it just for the podcast, and uh, the, the song "Intruder." Uh, there's like three different variations of it with different, like you know, a a, a continuous motif. But it's uh, yeah, it's it's fun if a bit 
straightforward. I, I, I don't know how to describe it other than like, you know, it, it harkens back to films for me uh, in a very strange way. It just feels mm. like that's what it's there for. It's doing what it is. And I can see why Kojima would want to improve it because from that perspective, it literally is not, it's for a Konami game, the soundtrack being a bit, it's okay. It's surprising. Like uh, we all look at Castlevania and go banger after banger after banger. Uh, and Metal Gear's got three, realistically speaking. It's, uh, yeah, okay. I like the nods to the films, but otherwise can't appreciate why it could be considered a little bit serviceable. Uh, I just want to quickly dial back one thing about the visuals I forgot to sure. mention, and it's in my notes. Uh, how many games in full 3D in 1990, well, before 1998 actually represented the room they were in in any clarity? Like, yeah, I would like Psychomancer's office looks like it could have been ripped from Resident Evil in terms of detail in full 3D. Mm -hmm. That was not a thing. Like, you, you look at Doom, you look at Duke Nukem, uh, and other games that were in a 3D environment nowhere near, uh, which is just another feather in Metal Gear's cap, at least Absolutely. in my opinion. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Stuff like that and the sort of offices where you face the, the ninja uh, is another room that stands out as a, a very clear, visual, practical room that makes sense. Um, yeah. And yeah, very well said, definitely. I know you've also no. got some opinions on the voiceover, actually. Uh, voiceover is it's more of a when it comes to the uh, a later point, which is in um, Twin Snakes. Mm -hmm. uh, but I suppose we could touch on it here in that it's a lot stronger in 1998 than it is in 2002. Oh, interesting. But having mostly the same cast, mm -hmm. uh, I would argue this is David Hayter's best interpretation of Snake. And I know why he doesn't do this version of the voice anymore is because it apparently hurts his throat something bad. Um, mm -hmm. But later on, he sounds like he's eating charcoal or caramel at the same time. It just doesn't have the, the same bite to it. You know? Yes, um, yeah. It's it's Weird. funny because I watched Escape from New York literally last night and uh, <laughs> the seeing the character in that uh, in parallel to Solid Snake and it, you can definitely see where a lot of that comes from the sort of short snappiness of his responses and stuff very much so I imagine almost um, I don't know how closely the voice cast sort of works with the with the rest of the team, I don't know if they were recommended to watch certain films or what, but it definitely feels like Hater looked at that for inspiration. And we know that obviously Kojima did because that's where the name Snake comes from, is from Escape from New York. A, a little bit of that. A little bit of, I don't know how true this is, but I, I distinctly remember reading an article at one point during Metal Gear Solid 3's casting. They were at one point trying to get Kurt Russell to replace Hater. <laughs> uh, obviously, that didn't pan out, but mm. I kind of wish we had to see it. <laughs> Uh, well, hear it, I suppose, but mm. yeah. Uh, Sherwin, what's your opinion on all of the audio in MGS? I think, um, I mean, I, I think you're again, I'm gonna echo everybody else, but it's something where the sound effects are perfect to what they need to be, um, and to the point of being iconic where they're not obvious ones like the alert time. Um, I definitely, re I, I, I don't use it myself, but I know exactly what you mean about the message tone, for example. Mm. Uh, comment, Adam, that's that's really spot on. I think, for me, there's there's a point where, where when you're looking at a game, it's all about understanding where you where you want to spend your complexity points. Where where do you want the, the person who's playing this thing to be looking, or how much do you not want to overwhelm them with too much stuff, too much information, and so on? And I think Metal Gear Solid does a really good job of understanding, well, there's so much visually going on. There's so much, that, you know, in terms of the theme and the story and the gameplay going on. If we throw this really um, 
bombastic or really dynamic sound approach to this as well, that's another thing to sort of pull the player away or to kind of compete for attention with us, all this other stuff that's going on. And it's much better, therefore, to just leave it simmering at a sort of ambient level or much more kind of reduced level and then sort of really dial it up when you want to make a big impact. And mm-hmm. I think that's a very much... I think that, that I think it does that very very well, as well as obviously the fact that exactly as we mentioned, immersion is absolutely you know the number one goal of what a lot of this game does, and you know not having sound or the sound is you know it's the soldiers walking around its footsteps. It's kind of something very very low kill that really draws you in again because one thing much like when I talked about the cutscenes, soundtrack generally tends to break you away from things or unless it's really building a theme to it. Resident Evil works really really well because you have a very eerie. Uh, very often kind of um, kind of very sinister kind of tone sort of going through the back because that's the feels that's the feel that or the theme that Resident Evil wants you to have as you go around it wants you to feel isolated and alone and everything else it doesn't want you to feel like you know kind of you know happy go lucky kind of you know running around for a zombie infested mansion the point is is that there's not enough visually or gameplay wise to really um, to do that on its own this is very much an accompaniment and it's interesting that Metal Gear Solid stands out. This is the golden age of, play- age of PlayStation games where soundtracks first really came into their own as something you can bolt yeah. into games. And a lot of places, the, you know, a lot of these games use that to supplement the fact that the graphics weren't quite there yet or you know, there wasn't quite enough sophistication in terms of the actual uh, the story arc or you know, the writing or whatever else. By comparison, Metal Gear gets all of those difficult parts right so it doesn't need to look at a soundtrack to actually do that otherwise, mm. uh, which I think is quite an important thing. And that's one of the reasons why we look at this game and say, this was really forward thinking. It does this, it does this. It ticks all of these boxes that games went on to go do. This is really a, a progenitor of all of that. Um, it's, And I think that's one of the strongest things to say about it. Definitely. And Jordan, what's your opinion on the audio design? Well, I think up and down, it's you know it's top notch. Obviously, the... Uh, the, the voice acting is superb. The fact of the matter is, these are people that you listen to for hours upon hours upon hours, and mm. um, and obviously, if you want to listen to them more, you can obviously go into the codec menu and listen to them for more hours and hours and hours. So obviously, we know that's you know knocking it out of the park. Um, you know, the, the cast is fantastic, especially those that obviously continue throughout the rest of the series. Um, you know, in many ways, they are completely irreplaceable voices they are those characters now um with regards to the rest of the audio uh, i mean yeah it it is it is very it is very delicate with its soundtrack it's it's interesting because i never looked at it that way and and until you you mention it that um that, yeah it is a little bit understated and uh obviously one thing that isn't necessarily understated is the fact that uh, because this is a stealth game it has to treat uh, the audio in a manner which impacts when it needs to. Mm. Um, you know, with that, you know, with that in mind, uh, it's one of those games that doesn't just let the soundtrack, you know, run its course. Just at, you know, the same track sort of looping through, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, it's the same song. Uh, it's it's always going to be the same level song. That's not the case here. Um, you know, typically it does sit in the back because you're meant to be concentrating on what you're doing or where you're going. You're listening out to, you know, who might be around the corner, who um, might be approaching for, you know, from from the hallway. Um, and one of the one of the most interesting aspects of Metal Gear Solid Sound is obviously when you're caught 
because all of a sudden, uh, sirens blaring, the, the music immediately changes. There is obviously an alert sound. It, it really compounds the um, the consequence of being caught. Right. It's not just, oh, it's just part of the gameplay. It's just like, you got to panic now because you are probably outmatched. <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it's fantastic because that is... It's in, di- in direct contrast to uh, the soundtrack, which, I mean, I, I love I love the soundtrack. I've listened to it for years just in, you know, is- isolation to the game. So perhaps it sort of is more prominent to me, having known that soundtrack so well and kind of coming back to the game so much. It is true that it is it is pretty quiet. And it's obviously it's designed in that manner. Right. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's as atmospheric, obviously, as... As the rest, as the rest of the visuals, um, you know, it, it, you know, way I mentioned that the textures are sort of like you know dripping in that detail. It's the same thing with with the audio and and, and the soundtrack in particular. It reminds me a lot of the the nineteen ninety five score for uh, GoldenEye, where it was um, it was very almost diegetically driven, mm. uh, you know, c- quite industrial. Um, and it, to be quite honest, I think that Mel Gear Solid. It only takes inspiration from uh, scores like that, but it, it goes quite a few steps further because there's so many aspects of the soundtrack that are just sound effects, just uh, you know, water dripping, um, and you know, different industrial banging and noises, mm-hmm. stuff that you stuff that you would hear if you were you know moving around a facility that is largely kind of cold and empty and um, generally sort of unfriendly. Um, one of the, obviously the, the big aspects of this of the score, which is, you know, it's found throughout most of the tracks is, is a chorus of some kind, um, which doesn't necessarily feel fitting when you, when you first start the game, because you're, you're not expecting it, but it's, it's there throughout. And I, I mean, it, you can, you can take all kinds of themes from uh, the the chorus, uh, you know, obviously, uh, this is 1998, quite a few years out from the Cold War, but uh, it, it has it has a certain theme of that with uh, obviously the nuclear focused um, plot of the story. Um, there's a supernatural element to some of the chorus, obviously, especially with Psychomancer's theme, and just in general isolation because it's. It's obviously there's a lot of reverb to most of these tracks. They feel like they're being played within the environment, not atop it. Uh, which is is probably again why I feel like there's just so much atmosphere to this game, um, and, and it's one of the biggest strengths I think of the of the game. A soundtrack doesn't necessarily have to make itself um, the focus, but mm. it can you know underlie everything else and and provide that kind of accent to your experience um i mean obviously the songs work on their own because you can enjoy these soundtracks um you know without necessarily having the game there but it is fascinating just how much of it is meant to be sort of embedded into the environment um so that it kind of blends you can hear it it's not like you're playing through complete silence um but it is there uh, in, a, in a reduced capacity because you're focusing on other things. And when the time comes for the action to roll in, 
you'll certainly know it because there's obviously the, some fantastic themes there with the mm. you know the intruder theme and, and the boss themes. Yeah, I I, I think it's uh, it's just another aspect of this game that is very refined and clearly knows where its inspiration is coming from and also mm. its intent. Mm-hmm. Well, you really went to bat for the soundtrack, so that's excellent. <laughs> at least <laughs> I. So let's move on to. Uh, characters, I think, before we head in the general direction of story. Because I think this was a confirmation for me that this character is Hideo Kojima's strength and also, in a way, uh, a bit of a weakness in some places as well, I'd say. Um, The Kojima game that I've played the most... (laughs) is Snatcher, which is a bit of an odd one, I guess, which is uh, a graphic adventure game that was made sort of uh, between Metal Gear 2 and Metal Gear Solid. Um, and that this is very much true of Snatcher as it is as MGS, is that he really uh, is really good at writing characters that you grow to love and, better yet, love the interactions between certain characters because he's very dialogue-driven. And that's true of Metal Gear and Snatcher is that you, uh, yeah, you, you, these characters are very likable um, because they have very realistic conversations. Some video games, a lot of video games want to be kind of succinct as possible, which makes sense. They want, you know, to have you having the most amount of control ideally as you can. So a lot of conversations and stuff are just... ABC go you know this is your objectives this is where we are this is what just happened it's very simple stuff whereas this game I don't want to use the word ramble but it likes to go on in its little tangents it relishes in moments to kind of like invite you into it as a real world more than just it's here's a video game with a series of objectives and stuff like that um, so that's true of the, the, the cutscenes and Jordan as you mentioned so much optional dialogue that you can miss in this game depending on how much you use the codec. You can run through the game using it a minimal number of times, only when you're sort of forced to, if you know the game well enough. Um, However, you can pretty much call all of your teammates at any point um, and get something interesting from them. Um, And if you know when and where to do it, you can get some really interesting stuff as well and really amusing stuff. Um, Nastasha, the weapon specialist, describing everything you've got including the cardboard box and where cardboard boxes come from and what they're made of. That's one that stood out to me as particularly amusing. And uh, my absolute favourite one is during the hind fight, where the game encourages you to use your stereo TV, which is obviously a big thing at 98, to understand where the helicopter is and hear where it's approaching from. Um, If you don't have a stereo TV, all of the characters kind of point that out and sort of like, well, I guess you're just sort of going to have to just stick it out. And I think the colonel says something like, there's more to being a good person than having a stereo television, which is just this <laughs> wonderful line. It's just, it's, yeah, just stuff like that. It's, this game was stuffed to the brim with all this extra stuff that you don't need to have, but it's so good. Uh, I'll talk I about... I'm writing on my wall. <laughs> exactly. You don't need a stereo TV. <laughs> exactly. What a wonderful mantra for life. Before I touch on the stuff I don't like about it... Um, I would like, you know, people to, to sort of chip in characters that you liked and talk, talk about the codec and stuff like that. So, uh, uh, Steve, why don't you start us off? Anything that stands out to you? Characters? Uh, I, I've got a soft spot for the villains. I always do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every time 
Cam, Car- Cam Clark as uh, Liquid is on the screen. I'm enthralled with how much scenery they chew. <laughs> like, yes. I think they've only probably been surpassed by maybe DC Douglas as Albert Wesker. Like, <laughs> that level of scenery chewing. Uh, yeah, you can't beat it. I mean, even the, like, the, uh, the little subtle mystery. I don't normally like the codec calls as much these days because I feel like I just want to get on with it. I want to, want to beat the game. I want to do the thing. Mm. Um, but I still like the uh, the slow, drawn-out way that Liquid posing as master is basically trying to undermine your entire support team by exposing Naomi, even though right. she's in the wrong the entire time. And the way that little like audio drama unfolds is very interesting. Right? It's it's mostly for me the dynamic between Snake and the villains, and they're all trying to basically point out that you're you're a pretty bad person yourself, Snake, in some way or another. And he's just I'm just here for the mission, mm. like. Um, the only person he opens up to human, humanly wise, really, is Meryl and Otacon. I would argue, even though like Meryl's meant to be like pseudo love interest, he does more have more of an emotional like resonance with Otacon. Yeah, as it goes on, uh, even to the point where even though he has just shot and murdered the person who was like you know Otacon was in love with Sniper Wolf, he's just trying to help him get over his grief. Uh, mm. Followed by you know you don't have to stay. You know I've got this. You can go. Uh, and Otacon still stays anyway. Um, that stuff's brilliant. Again, 1998, making people cry and sympathize with these things. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's crazy. It is um, funny. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, it's funny because you, yeah, I, I didn't think about it before, but the characters that he connects with most are sort of people that are external to the mission in a way. So Otacon that you just come across and Meryl that he has no idea about until you come across as well. So that's an interesting point. Yeah. Like the, the people back at base, he has obviously got a history with Roy Campbell. But mm-hmm. It's it's more of a thing that is touched on at the beginning and the end, uh, more so than the bad ending as well, because of well, what happens with Meryl. Yeah, it's kind of weird on that one. Um, Adam, any standout characters for you? Uh, you know, I like everyone. Yeah, like Steve says, the bad guys are great just because they. You know, the, the the thing about villains in, in almost all media is they get to be a lot more out there. Right. Um, which is more enjoyable as, as a viewer, obviously. Um, I think what you were saying as well, Sai, about, you know, Kojima and his characters is that every character he makes is three-dimensional. Mm-hmm. They have, like it's clear that they have a life he's you know he's gone through kind of all the things like they all have actual personalities there isn't any character that doesn't have humor sadness anger they run the gamut um and Mm. they're all very realistic for it you know it's very easy, I think, to write a character that is a one-note thing. And it could be easy in this as well. You could be like, oh, Snake, he's a soldier. He doesn't really, like, have a lot of emotions. Oh, Otacon's just, like, a, a nerd or whatever. But they all have very, you know, they're onions. They have a lot of layers. Um, <laughs> and that's really to his, you know, and, mm. and, and he does it with every character. You know, and even even like the guards have a lot of personality throughout the game. 
Um, I think he does a great job. I think that uh, he maybe goes too far with that. Interesting. Not in this game, but later in the series. Okay. I think I think it gets too much about all the people and their different personalities and stuff. We get we get a bit too deep into that. Mm. But for this game, I think it's perfect. I think he does a great job. Well, you actually hit on the thing that I have to sort of like say, do a Phoenix Wright style objection, I think. Um, I think there's a few one-note characters in this and it's par for the course with Kojima, I think. And this is why I brought up Snatcher because I noticed it then when I played that. And this is uh, uh, true of Metal Gear Solid now and I'm fairly certain, not that I've played all of the later games and haven't played Death Stranding from what I've seen, he seems to have a serious issue writing female characters. Um Sure. Meryl's got some interesting backstory, but she's essentially a damsel in distress. Um, failing, it basically exists to worry about Snake and to be hit on. Sniper Wolf is kind of interesting, but then she's a love interest for some reason for us a lot, which I didn't um, totally believe. If I could jump in real quick on you, Sai. Sure. I think that Kojima, when it comes to women, um, he... It's definitely true, but I think he kind of defines them by their love of whatever man. <laughs> yeah, that. And that is an, is that is an issue, for yeah. sure. <clears throat> yeah. Um, uh, he definitely sort of is like, this lady character is defined by this man character. Yes. Um, yeah. And obviously, you know, maybe he just doesn't know how to write women or whatever, but I will agree with you there, for sure. Mm-hmm. I just, yeah, uh, that is something I literally have is that basically almost every character falls into the trope of being a bad guy or a love interest when it comes to women. You know, Naomi, I can guillotine. I mean, her story in the game is quite interesting. But other than love interest, the other obvious one is, oh, she turns out to be a bad guy. She's a traitor or whatever. Um, but that's it's, still it's just predicated Nastasha. on her love for the men in her life. That's true. That's true. Very. That's very true. Only Nastasha doesn't fall into the trope of bad guy or some kind of love mm-hmm. interest. And, you know, not to turn this into the Snatcher podcast, but it's it's the same <laughs> in that, where every, every single female character in that game, um, I'm not sure if it's optional to hit on them or if it's mandatory. I can't remember. But I'm pretty sure it comes up with every single female character, which is, yeah, it's kind of a shame. And then, yeah, later MGS, I already know gets pretty ridiculous with it so that part's a shame because i do love a lot of the other characters and it's not like i dislike all the female characters rightly i just yeah it's just a shame they fall into the the love interest or bad guy trope but that's my my uh, soapbox um jordan how do you Your feel about the, my, my yeah that's my piss box uh jordan <laughs> <laughs> how do you feel about the characters well, I think you've covered it for uh, for the most part. But if I was to if I was to give a highlight to you know any particular uh, characters, I love Roy Campbell. Um, yeah, you know Paul Iden plays him so well. Um, it, the perfect kind of guidance figure to kind of have, not just for Snake but for the player as well. Um, but of course, he's obviously he's wrapped up in this situation himself. Um, you know, obviously there is a lot of kind of uh, double crossing, secrecy. Um, and levels of sort of complexity to um, the Shadow Moses incident that can often go over the heads of even Snake and Campbell. I kind of love the relationship that they have, where, to be quite honest, they are, you know, they're they're a bit of sort of the old, the old veterans, uh, you know, being called in because you know they're specialists, um, and uh, they they both kind of realize that 
to some extent. They're in over their heads. Um, there is a lot more to this that they haven't necessarily been briefed on. Um, and I, I just find it fascinating the way that they kind of share that experience. Um, mm -hmm. They won't necessarily have that kind of relationship going forward in in you know the future games based on the plot. Um, but when I kind of come back to this, I really kind of I really appreciate that. Um, obviously, you know, Roy Campbell appears to have quite a large sort of inspiration from Colonel Troutman in in the Rambo films, and obviously the exact same kind of relationship is happening there. You know, the world's moved on and changed, and here are these two men that. Uh, you know, still very good at what they do. Don't necessarily know how to kind of apply themselves as things as things change around them. And uh, yeah, it's, it's it's fascinating to kind of see that aspect of of that sort of character relationship and interaction grow. Especially because obviously these are characters that were already in the series. So this is sort of mm. their obviously their best depiction in the series today. It's the closest we've sort of been to them as characters because we're actually getting to hear the performance now. Yeah. And what's more, they're being kind of presented with a lot of sort of uh, greater cons consequences in, in, you know, in the scenes. Um, yeah, particularly like that, um, you know, as a standout, obviously all of the characters, you know, have a lot of entertainment to them, a lot of appeal. But that part in particular, that's what I always kind of come back to. You know, that's why a codex screen is so iconic to me, where it's just mm. literally just Snake and Campbell, because you're just so used to seeing those characters, um, you know, talk over the hours that you're you're working through the game. Um, so yeah, that's a standout for me. Excellent, um, Sherwin. Any particular characters for you that stood the test of time? Uh, I've got to echo the uh, the Rory Campbell stuff. Yeah, um, like really, really spot on uh, what you've just said. Um, for me, that is exactly the that that's almost perfect again that's that's your ally against the world or uh, you know against this game and and so on and it really does feel, feel like something where uh by the end of the game you you know you've gained a buddy uh it really is that simple um the friendship really the writing and the friendship of the two characters really does work well um what's interesting for me is i think this is probably way back when the first game where i think i really came to understand or really first-hand experience kind of that occasional twist that Occasionally, Japanese games kind of give to some of their characters, or do yeah, you know, the occasional sort of wackiness that sometimes bleeds through. <laughs> and um, I think, I, I think, I think Metal Gear is kind of yeah, is is uh, is guilty of that as much as anything. I remember kind of rolling my eyes at the Otacon name, for example. Um, <laughs> Sniper Wolf is another one. Um, you know, the idea of decoy octopus, which is a spectacular name before anything else, <laughs> but also talking about injecting blood into himself. Off of the people, that sort of thing. I remember mm -hmm. kind of just thinking, as the uh, as think as you kids would say now, it's just a bit extra. Um, it's, it's just a little bit excessive. Uh, apologies if my old man language doesn't understand <laughs> that term. But the point is, is that there's so much in this game where I just kind of bear in mind how many how painstakingly the game takes to take itself extremely seriously, kind of really attach loads and loads of attention to detail elsewhere, and really kind of build build itself up to be this really super immersive experience those slight twists to each of the characters in their own ways enough to kind of pull me out a fraction kind of roll my eyes um and each one of those but at the same time that's just what this game is that's the vision of the people who made it right and that's just something where i don't necessarily i think the biggest one for me was the bit where we started talking about vulcan raven being a shaman 
is truthfully it. At that point, I'm like, okay, you come from Alaska and now you're a shaman. That's weird. And <laughs> it's it, it's start and you know, and your skin makes you impervious to cold because you grew up in Alaska. I'm pretty sure people in Alaska wear t-shirts. Um, yeah, that sort of thing. So it just a few things like that kind of really made me sort of uh, slightly cringe um, mm. at the time, and that hasn't gone away. But mm. at the same time, the game is a classic for all of the good reasons about it, right? So. Yeah, yeah. There's a uh, there's some moments where I was like, really. And Otakon's got a couple of them, you know, at the beginning, the Japanese animes and all that bit. Um, yeah. That being said, it also is followed up by some of my favorite lines in the game where. Um, Snake says the god must have a sense of humor because of Otacon's family history and how they're involved with the sort of nuclear weaponry and stuff. And then he asks him if he feels okay because everyone else he's met today has suddenly died, which I quite liked. Little bits like that, where it's like, as I said, I know the basic story points of all this game, um, but all these little moments, actually getting to see them unfold on screen was was really cool. And that brings us nicely to the story. We've talked a lot about this game already. And I imagine most people that have got this far into the podcast probably know Metal Gear Solid. But nonetheless, let me just read one paragraph of story setup. Uh, the year is 2005, six years after the plot events of Metal Gear 2, a renegade genetically enhanced special forces unit Foxhound has seized a remote island in Alaska's Fox... I can never say this word. Archipelago. Archipelago. There we go. Codenamed Shadow Moses, <laughs> the site of a nuclear weapons disposal facility. Foxhound threatens to use the nuclear-capable mecha Metal Gear Rex against the US government if they do not receive the remains of Big Boss and the ransom of $1 billion within 24 hours. Solid Snake is forced out of retirement by Colonel Roy Campbell to infiltrate the island and neutralise the threat. So definitely what we were saying about how this was inspired by films. A lot of that is... Almost in parts, bashed together from iconic film parts, you've always got the coming out of retirement bit. And there's a lot, right? Just as a setup, there was a lot going on there. The remains of Big Boss and stuff. And there's one thing about this game that I thought was really interesting is I kind of assumed because it's Metal Gear Solid, whilst it is a follow-up to those other games, plot-wise and gameplay-wise and everything else, I thought it was really going to strike out to be its own thing and, and be a bit disconnected but it really doesn't bother to worry the player you know we're going to talk about outer heaven and stuff and if you don't get it that's on you it doesn't like leave big gulfs of misinformation even slightly and if you've got the manual it's all in there. there's like a keyword several pages thing for, to read at the back to, to fill you in um, but it really doesn't shy away from being part of a series referencing stuff that's come before referencing stuff that hasn't come yet i guess i think there's stuff in there that gets to be explained in mgs3 and stuff um yeah it's, it's a, there's a lot going in but i just yeah the way, the way that it's paced i really enjoyed the way that it unfolded because i never felt like i was being i never felt particularly confused even though by the end of it if you try and explain the plot there's there's a lot going on there even just like the decoy octopus twist and stuff like that there's, it's quite complex but the way that it's told is, is very well done show and you mentioned that the thing that you like most about this game is the theming and the story so i'm going to let you go off for here do you know i think i mean i think that the theming i'm more thinking about the actual again as i talked about kind of you know you, the design you versus the playstation a lot mm -hmm. of the design and the tones and everything else but i think the the story definitely is very immersive it's it's mm -hmm. very much i mean we've talked about it being like a movie before this really is it's playing a movie and yeah. it is you kind of going through and getting to really interact 
of it in that way. And I don't think there's any games that did this before Metal Gear Solid. Uh, and there's very few games that have successfully done it since, where it just feels completely artificial. So that's one of the biggest things about this that really, really works for me. I mean, in ter- it's almost to the point where, in terms of some of the details, it almost doesn't matter. It's about the actual experience. It's the journey of you going through it that's the most important part here. Um, yeah, I mean... All of that stuff is literally ripped out of action movies and so on. I mean, there needs to be a Paul Anderson movie at some point, obviously, um, to really make appreciate this uh, <laughs> game for. Um, but, but in all seriousness, <laughs> but in all seriousness, like I, I'd let you stop for a moment because Sony needs to laugh that one off. But yeah, thanks. Um, no, no. But in all seriousness, it's. I think, in spite of all the really clunky, weird sort of, um, or slightly odd misdirection kind of Japanese stuff I mentioned before, um, or where it kind of doesn't work, the storyline almost feels like it's fine. It it just rolls through. It doesn't feel like it really jumps the shark in any particular moments. I can't say that of later games in the series, but it it feels like a natural successor to the original game as well, which mm. is a very nice. I remember at the time I, I did actually play the original. It wasn't the best experience if i'm entirely truthful but um it felt very much like they got it right on this one if that makes sense it felt yeah. very much like, like you've taken the stuff from before and you've really used that to flesh it up into this sort of you know what you talked about final fantasy 7 this is really like the next step up where this series just exploded and what suddenly felt like it was really a big concept mm-hmm. and i think that's exactly what the storyline is doing for this game yeah absolutely it's strange because it it feels like a film absolutely 100% and yet it doesn't shy away from being a video game at all. Like a lot of modern games want to do the film thing um, and you could accuse them of being too much in that direction. You know, you've got too many games with uh, quick time events and stuff like that or, or moments of game. Even MGS5, we were talking about this on the stream that Adam mentioned, MGS5, it takes like an hour before you actually get to proper gameplay. There's a lot of crawling through cutscenes and stuff. Um, but this feels like a film even though it's clearly a game because it breaks the fourth wall a lot and tells you about you know asks you what kind of television you have and tells you to unplug the controller it, it's very weird that it manages to ride the line of being a film and a game um, Steve how do you feel about the story you're saying the word film but I kind of feel like this is more episodic at times obviously hmm. the nature of the game and levels well, yeah. it, it always feels like the current objective and when you achieve said objective, like find the DARPA chief or an Armstead president you get to the nuclear watchdog, they all feel like they could have been their own like mini little episode in a, in a show. Sure, yeah. Um, with the way it's paced out. I I genuinely do enjoy the story, uh, but I have to be honest, I, I, with the way that you blitz through these things these days, it has, it has kind of um, worn a little thin over the years. Like, there's one particular crux where I really do get a bit... Uh, fed up with the plot and that is backtracking to get a sniper rifle to then sure. have to get captured and then go over the same path three times in the space that's, of like yeah, that's five minutes not good. and you know that's the story and the gameplay both backtracking to the point where I really really do get a bit hacked off but then you get rewarded with a an actual torture scene which is very eventful like you've got a lot of char- character growth in those scenes and you get to cover yourself and catch up and fool the guard if you're being very silly. But I think that the main, without going over the story itself and its purest like form, the fact that it does ride a line between the absurd and the serious, mm. but at never point tips too far over the scales, 
except maybe, you know, plug the controller into socket two right now, Snake, etc. It is an almost impossible tightrope walk. Like you say, and I don't, I don't see how they could have pulled it off any better than they already did. Like later games, they uh, they normally fall into one slide or the other mm-hmm. of being completely absurd or being inter- incredibly too serious. But this is a game where you literally have in one moment a uh, a hind helicopter attacking you, and then you have a you know almost a goofy slapstick segment where the two characters are having a conversation trying to figure out why there's four people on the lift instead of one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's it's got a lot of emotional resonant story beats. It's got a lot of like you know twists and turns, which is you know maybe it's the fact that I've been spoiled with modern games in this one and I'm burnt out on the general concept. But for the time, groundbreaking. I think we've said it about a million bloody times. For the mm. time, it's been groundbreaking. The only other things that came close, the Resident Evil games. I would argue I still play them more now than I would on GS One. Uh, for the story, ironically enough. Um, I guess that means maybe MGS is a little too indigestible for me, and I would have mm. preferred it to be episodic. I'm kind of rambling, sorry. No, no, that's, that's a good point, actually. I mean, I suppose, as we said, the nature of the codec is you can sort of take in as much as you want, you can as much as you choose to do. Um, I'm glad you brought up running back and forth over Metal Gear, because I forgot to mention that, and, and Sherwin pointed out this too is... Maybe a little bit of a letdown if you didn't know how much story was left to go and you put in this new disc. And unfortunately, uh, yeah, a good amount of it is running over that same pathway so many times. That's not great. And I do feel like the only time it sort of wobbles off a little bit and falls over on on its little tricycle into a ditch, uh, I didn't. The ending was too sugary, syrupy Japanese storytelling at its worst for me. Where <laughs> live for yourself, it said it like twelve times or something, and all that. It just goes on a bit at the end. Um, everything up until getting out of the tunnel and stuff is nice, but after that, I was like, okay, I just want to see my results screen now. <laughs> um, Adam, how did you feel about the story? <laughs> I'll immediately agree with you about the end. Mm. Um, it does that whole like fun that Japanese yeah. trope of you know self. It's it's always a fun thing that you see. But in all honesty, like firstly, the game, like many games in series, really benefits from being quote unquote the first in the storyline. Um, mm. I know that obviously there were a few Metal Gear games before this, um, but this one really is like the beginning of. It's kind of like a reset. The story Metal Gear games, mm. exactly. And and in that sense, you know, it's very much a contained story mm-hmm. um, because obviously they weren't aware if it was going to be a hit or not, if they were going to do more. So that, that always helps. Um, but I think that it's, it's a story that really is, you know, is very playable if you don't want to pay much attention to it. Um, but it's also very rewarding if you really want to kind of pay attention um, and dive in. There is a lot in there. Uh, I think that's really good. I think that um, if you spend the time to listen to the codex and, you know, pay attention during all of the cutscenes, it's definitely very rewarding. It is a full experience. Like Steve said, I think, you know, I I definitely see it more as an episodic thing. Um, 
because throughout the game, your current objective is pretty much the thing that is first and center. Mm-hmm. Um, and it jumps from piece to piece. Right. And yeah. it kind of arcs with a storyline. Mm. Um, so I would agree agree with Steve on that. But yeah, I just think it's super solid. It's it's a fun story. It doesn't try to do too much. You know, it, it, it look at later Metal, Metal Gears for that kind of like level of insanity. This is very much um, a contained story in one area. Um, the visuals absolutely aid in that story. Um, it feels for all of the, you know, I know obviously you've got psycho man is flowing around and using mind powers and stuff, but it still feels like a very realistic story. It's a very simple one of terrorists commandeering nuclear weapons. Um, hello, die hard as someone mentioned earlier. <laughs> and I think that that helps it a lot mm. because it grounds it. Kojima's got a few fantastical characters in here that don't make sense in reality, but the way that the game looks and the story beats it takes are very much realistic for want of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that really helps the characters a lot. Right. It's easy to be it's better to be wacky in a sort of realistic setup than be wacky in a wacky setup because then you've no idea what you need to take seriously. Exactly. Yeah. You 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 can accept the small amounts of wackiness because everything else is grounded right. in Snake as a character. Yeah. And and you know, all of your superfluous characters out not superfluous, that's the wrong word, but outside of the more out there characters are very grounded. The conversation, even the wacky characters have more realistic conversations. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, so, you you know, it lets you get away with it a bit more. Mm-hmm. Like I say, I'm going to keep harping on Metal Gears after this just being horrible. Um, <laughs> not all of them, but just, they just progressively get more and more crazy. Um, and I don't know, it just makes me appreciate this one a lot more. Uh, Jordan, what are your thoughts on the story? Well, obviously, on the face of it, it's uh, it, it it seems like a more typical sort of uh, American action flick or something like that, you know. Um, and and <laughs> you kind of quickly realize, even if just in you know a line here or there, that's not the case. I mean, if you're if you're not getting it by the time that. Uh, you hear someone described as giant and shaman, uh, you definitely get it when you start seeing people floating in hallways and then disappearing. Um, it's just, it's weird because, you know, for the most part, it is intended to be kind of a sort of a riff on sort of like, you know, special forces movies or something, Navy SEAL. Mm. And obviously, um, not necessarily Bond films, but spy films in, in general. Obviously, that is, you know, where it's sort of, uh, lending its inspiration from. But to actually try and explain that to people who don't necessarily um, know anything about Metal Gear Solid and try and explain it in those terms, it just doesn't work. I've tried it. <laughs> I've tried so many times to be kind of like, oh, Metal Gear Solid, you know, like that's probably like one of the best sort of examples of sort of like um, 
you know, a game that can become a film and all of that kind of stuff. But it, it, it does have baggage. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, good luck if you first started playing this game and one of your earliest questions is, who's Big Boss? Because it's just going to unpack so many mm-hmm. different Don't go on additional the questions. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. And um, it's fascinating, really, because it's something that it's almost like it flew over my head at the time. Because I really didn't, it's not like I didn't pay attention to it. It's I heard everything. It's just that it's almost like, it's almost like Metal Gear Solid can, Metal Gear Solid, the game, not the series, but Metal Gear Solid, the game can almost operate on multiple levels. I think it's part of the reason why, you know, it was so successful. 12 million demo discs or not, I think that there was something there about the story that put enough eyes on it and got enough attention that people actually sat down and were spoon-fed, frankly, a lot of new terms um, and a a, a lot of uh, new paradigms to, uh, you know, a plot that are, are... frankly on on the face of it kind of a bit bamboozling because uh you you can follow this story i couldn't even necessarily describe the plot in 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 total um there's still Mm. there's still aspects to it where i'm kind of like wait how does that link up to this or whatever and obviously there's been plenty of retcons in the series since then which makes some of that stuff irrelevant anyway Mm. but it, it is almost like it works on different levels so you can go through this game and you can know the general ins and outs of the plot and almost like translate it into your head of what Kojima is basically, um, you, you know, pr- producing in terms of uh, you know a layout to the story. Um, but there, there obviously is a, an extra level to that. Obviously, if you're coming in with previous knowledge of the other games, that certainly helps, and the information is there. Um, it just just doesn't feel like it's necessarily crucial. It doesn't necessarily feel like right. you know everything kind of rests on you understanding where the sons of big boss came from um it probably does help that it it loses sense of reality um not a third of the way in and you know you're dealing with you know almost comic book like scenarios and this is not a typical terrorist group you know in in 1998 or well to be quite honest in any of the years following if you just weren't following mgs and you were told about this game that features a terrorist group uh you're not going to be thinking of this <laughs> ragtag group that includes a gunslinger. No, he doesn't just use guns. He's dressed like an actual gunslinger. Um, it's just it's it's absurd, but it somehow works. Mm. Obviously, there's a there's an extra layer to it, which is actually the the theming. It's it's more to do with the, the actual the subject matter that is covered. It's not necessarily at the forefront of the plot, but it is. Uh, you know, what the plot sort of has to heavily entrench itself in in order to build the world. And clearly, not just in this game, but throughout the series, Kojima has a lot to say um, about nuclear war and nuclear arms. Um, it's very it's very obviously heavy in this game, and there's plenty of forays in the cutscenes where it just, just starts talking about the state of the world. You know, right. uh, you know what what is most typical in the military industrial complex, and all of these all of these different things, which again people aren't necessarily uh, picking up the game because they want to kind of hear about nuclear disarmament. That's not something that's even advertised on the box. Um, but it's obviously something that Kojima, you know, likes to talk about and likes to indulge. I mean, I've always said that I think the only reason that 
you know, Kojima would come back to Metal Gear Solid now is if he has something to say, because it's always felt like mm. throughout those games, he's had something that he's wanted to say. Not necessarily always about nuclear war, um, but obviously other other different subjects that, you know, he he finds fascinating, especially in the modern age. Um, and then obviously retreading back to Snake Eater and all of the, uh, you know, programs and technologies that were coming up, uh, you know, through the 60s and 70s that led to these kind of, um, you know, adv- advancements and, you know, change of the landscape, mm. um, you know, in the, in the 2000s onwards. It's it's funny because, you know, there's, cert- there's certain filmmakers that um, can kind of get sort of uh, branded, that, that, that their films can be not necessarily preachy, but clearly indulgent in the subject matter. That more than telling a story, they more just kind of want to tell you uh, right. a, a procedure of uh, of facts of of you know what the world's like. People like Oliver Stone, people like Adam McKay, quite indulging in their writing. Um, and t- to that to that extent, Kojima reigns it in for this game. It will get more indulgent as as we move forward. Mm. In in this game, it's it's just sort of teetering into that. You, you obviously you, it's 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 interesting to kind of learn about this this aspect of the of the real world. That's when it kind of like it breaches out into our real world, and we kind of learn exactly what happens to nuclear materials and exactly how many nuclear arms are still active in the world. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, a horribly outdated uh, statistic now is mm. featured in that game. But it's just it's. It's fascinating. Um, it's it's weirdly accessible and inaccessible as a plot. I just just don't try and explain it to people. That's that's all I would say. Maybe sit somebody down and see if they can deal with an hour of Metal Gear Solid. If they are still interested, then they're probably going to go through the rest of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually trying to sit somebody down and say, "Oh, this is just like action movies or whatever," it's just it's just not. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's really kind of it's it's really hard to kind of um, try and recommend it in that manner, mm. and I've just stopped doing it because Metal Gear Solid is its own thing. Absolutely, it, it is. It is. It is all that commentary and mysticism and clear aping of action movies rolled into one. Somehow, it manages to remain coherent enough, and obviously, it is loved by millions of people around the world. But I just. Sometimes I do have to wonder how on earth did it manage to be so accessible and appealing to people um, when they actually got their hands on it and they realize that they're going to be dealing with, you know, mind readers in their game about rescuing the the diaper chief. I mean, yeah, for fair point, really. But as Adam said, uh, this is the least crazy game in the series, I think. So. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Before we sort of wrap up and give final thoughts, there is a couple of other parts. I just want to touch on sort of lasting legacy of the game. Um, I know Steve in particular wanted to talk about uh, Twin Snakes, which is the GameCube remake, um, which released, which is quite interesting, actually. I knew I was aware of this. I remember when it came out as well, um, or at least I remember it being talked about among those friends when they were playing MGS3. Um sort of discussing what was better the original or the remake and i didn't understand at the time because i thought well how can can they really be that different um but i suppose yeah absolutely you can case in point the resident evil 1 remake 
Um, obviously, people point out, you know, it's only, it was only six years old when it got remade. Same with MGS. Um, literally six years apart, the original game and the Twin Snakes GameCube remake, which gave it a, a substantial visual upgrade, but amongst many other things. Steve, you know much more about this than I do because I haven't had a chance to dip into this yet properly. Um, what do you reckon? Okay, so imagine you're, you know, you're, you're hot on the heels of Metal Gear Solid 2 and you really, really, yeah, I thought it was okay. Well, I prefer playing a snake. And then they announced they're going to redo Metal Gear Solid in the aspect ratio and, you know, the way of Metal Gear Solid 2's control system. Mm -hmm. That sounds really good. You've even got the old voice cast back. Brilliant. Oh, we're going to get a uh, an increased uh, soundtrack. Fantastic. The uh, mechanics of MGS2 break this game, make it so <laughs> it's uh, incredibly too easy to okay. just pulverize anything and anything. Like... In, in MGS2, the, the, it adds like simple things like being able to like snapshot from round corners and aim right. in first person. Yeah, this alone like ruins pretty much Ocelot's entire gambit. Um, but the, I think the, the worst thing for me is the voice acting feels flatter and more lifeless, which is a shame because they tried to do something a little bit more, um, should we say, less offensive. Uh, in the original MGS, there's a lot of caricature accents mm. that are a bit on the nose, like Mei Ling and Nastasha right. with their their uh, Chinese and Russian accents being a little bit too cartoony, like 1980s cartoony. Mm -hmm. They tried to remove them. But despite getting, I think it's like 99.9% .9 of the returning cast back, they all deliver somewhat more dis disinterested performances that take a lot of the um, charm away. And this may be pure nostalgia talking. But then we get to the cutscenes, where despite the script being the entirety the same, the cutscenes now are almost... Um, how to put it, if the original is Die Hard, like the original Die Hard, mm. uh, Twin Snakes is, what is it, Die Hard 4.0, where he launches a car at a helicopter off a ramp. Which is it is yeah, very Matrix-inspired. Yeah, mm -hmm. and the, the action sequences seem so absurd and out of Snake's character, and he'll do such strange things like punch a man on fire just because he's on fire and has been blown out of a tank while backflipping over missiles. And, you know, seeing the ninja do these things, kind of cool, makes sense, cyborg ninja. Seeing Snake do these things, Spec Ops mercenary guy, really peels you out. Like, mm. when you're backflipping past missiles and things in a, a tense action game, you're wondering, why aren't you Devil May Cry? Um, <laughs> yeah. But it, 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 it's... The main catch-all is that it's... In every part where they've tried to improve, they've... The rough edges were what defined the game on the PS1 in a way. Mm. Like the visuals are all cleaner. You can still recognize these rooms as what they were. But it see it feels too much like a carbon copied recolored port of the second game, just with a uh, a slight shifty around of the first furniture to be MGS1. Hmm. Yeah. I was kind of curious to play this after finishing MGS. Uh but from what you've shown me, I that interest has waned a lot. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, the cutscenes are just is too anime for me for one thing. It's just too Which much. is weird because, from what I understand, Kojima pretty much just gave Silicon Knights to go ahead to do it and didn't really have any oh, right. you know, interesting any, any proper involvement at all. It's <laughs> probably why we can't get the game anywhere because it's Silicon Knights and also Eternal Darkness Two is probably never going to happen, guys. Sorry. I know. Um, Rob it in. <laughs> <laughs> There was a, uh, a better 
sort of, I know a lot of people have chastised it. There was a better expansion to Metal Gear Solid, though. Um, VR missions, if I mm. can just quickly take sure, the floor. Have anyone else played these? Um, so they're, they're built on the, the VR missions in the base game. You know, the, the, the Tron-like little puzzle tasks which involve using your weapons and the gameplay to your advantage to basically mm-hmm. get a higher score. And while a lot of these are basically retreads of the same thing with a bit with more courses, like think um, Mario Lost Levels to Super Mario Brothers, there are some standout silly and all right, just peculiar moments where they've realized, right, this is a computer simulation, so let's get wacky. <laughs> um, so you can fight, for example, new bosses, like a Godzilla-sized genome soldier. <laughs> or you can solve murder mysteries in these custom-built, almost not like a Resident Evil mansion in terms of size and scale, but that level of detail where you have to scan <laughs> the environment for clues and figure out who's the villain. Um, these, when they take the game engine and do something uh, absurd with it, are oh, the standout moments of this. Plus, you can you know play as the ninja and rip oh, off Tenchi cool. for a bit. Yeah, <laughs> nice. not quite as Godzilla. Oh, I was just say it's not quite as in depth as Tenchu in terms of what you can do, but you can. You can do everything the ninja does in the game. It's a real mark of confidence, um, you know, from from the developers that they've been able to produce a game that, you know, frankly has enough to it that it can exceed the actual original game experience. Um, you know, I'm I'm not trying to kind of, you know, throw shade at, at other game developers, but you know, ultimately it is a practice that um, sometimes you can make all of the uh, mechanics and then kind of spread that over a 40 hour experience that doesn't necessarily constantly feel like it's throwing new things at you. This does. Uh, VR, VR missions really just kind of like stand out as that kind of, well, you know, we, we, we've, we've produced a game that, you know, a typical playthrough, especially kind of once you know where to go, can be maybe six or seven hours. Mm. Um, it's it's not like the content isn't there. You can go ahead, and you can you can play around with the you know the stealth and the action um, of Metal Gear Solid in all other kinds of scenarios that are not applicable to the plot, and and that's all it is. It's it's just um, this extra fun, and I love it. I I mean I kind of wish that there were more games that were like that where it's just a supplementary experience that is more about. Uh, what's already there, and and you know what you can kind of uh, take away from that, and uh, you know apply to its own little uh, you know bubble of gameplay. Um, it's it's super fun, and you can play as uh, the Cyborg Ninja, I think, in a few missions as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is a which is a nice nice touch. I say this uh, extra the VR extra missions were so popular. I think that's why they riffed on it again for the expanded version of Metal Gear Solid Two. Um, complete with the same kind of silly bosses and challenges. Right. Uh, it's, I think it was a, more of a flex. Like, the, you know, all these players have played for this game and didn't even know you could do half of these uh, tasks and little tricks with the items that will make them into mini-missions and puzzles. Like, for example, the C4 thing I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that was possible until VR missions. And then, yes, it turns out, yes, you can be that sadistic in the main game. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, in terms of the legacy of Metal Gear Solid... Um, IGN put it 19th in their top 100 games of all time in 2005. Um, in 2010, PC Magazine ranked it 7th in the list of most influential video games of all time. And in 2012, Time named it as one of the 100 greatest video games of all time. G4 TV put it at number 45 of their list of top video games of all time. It's often cited as one of the most uh, important and one of the best PlayStation titles ever released. It spawned 
numerous sequels, as we've said, two, three, four, five spin-offs. Um, I asked our Discord server what their preference is on the numbered title, and the original Metal Gear Solid just sneaked out on top, just over Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater, uh, by a single solitary vote. So all that being said, uh, the first game is still, according to this poll, slightly more beloved, um, which is why... I mean, I, I guess we're to assume that it's the one being made into... After many, 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 many years of talk being made into a live-action film, I assume it's... I don't know if there's confirmation on this, if it's the first game that's being reimagined or if it's going to be something else entirely. But, uh, yeah, there is a new live-action film on the way with some casting being announced. I think literally just the the lead, which is Oscar Isaac as uh, Snake, which is, for me, for my money, I think that's fantastic. I know, Jordan, that you you had some things to say about this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, it's uh, it's it's a production that has kind of been somewhat active for years. Mm. Um, there has just about always been somebody who has wanted to kind of hold the rights to a Metal Gear Solid movie, but not necessarily known the kind of maneuver to be able to actually produce it. I don't believe he's, he's. I don't know if he's actually still attached. I believe he is. Um, but you know, one of the main actors that sort of has been. Uh, part of this production throughout the years is, is it Avi, Avi Arad, uh, the producer Avi Arad. I believe he works at um, Sony. Give me a, give me a quick check. Just to... yes, Avi Arad. Um, uh, yeah, he, he, he works for uh, Sony Pictures. Um, hmm. I believe he produced the uh, the Sam Raimi Spider Man films. Has a good friendship partnership with Kojima, and uh, okay. I think I think for a long time they've kind of. They've obviously wanted to be able to produce a film. What stopped them up to this point? I don't know. You know, maybe it was watching Anderson doing this thing, and they thought, "Well, we just we can't obviously <laughs> can't eclipse that." Yeah. Um, but it's it's this is probably the most substantial um, movement that I've seen on a, on a project mm. in in a long time. Um, I believe there was some concept art that came out about two years ago, which would suggest that it is more likely to be um, centered around you know the plot of metal gear solid one right um i think that's probably the best choice <laughs> i know obviously i said about the story being somewhat accessible slash inaccessible depending on what you're getting out of it but i still think uh you know at the core um there's there's a plot there that you could at least simplify to kind of put across a sort of a two-hour runtime because ultimately it is still very much the um sort of plot synopsis of uh you know a like of a diehard uh you know where it's it's one location um and you you, you have got a cast of characters that you got to come up against but it is it is this um one uh, protagonist that is basically stuck in the in the lion's den and he's gonna he's gonna kind of find his way out so it, it can certainly work i mm. wouldn't want it to be its own thing I know people have talked no. about that before, yeah. where it's kind of like, oh, what if they maybe come up with something original? I just no. don't trust Hollywood enough to do that. Um, yeah. There's there's too many examples of, of video game films that um, I understand. They, they want to maybe give it a, a kind of a treatment that would make it more film-like, but I think you just, you end up losing the identity. And, you know, Metal Gear Solid has a very strong identity. You don't really want that messed around with. I think the pick for uh, Solid Snake is... Fantastic. Oscar Isaac is a tremendous actor. I've never had any particular sort of like wish list for mm. actors, despite how much I love the series. 
um, and you know, coming up with like fantasy cast lists. Never actually thought about it. So um, while well, it was kind of like a big surprise to see that not only is Oscar Isaac a big fan of the film, well, sorry, big fan of the film that's about to come out, um, of of the games, um, and that he's obviously maneuvered that into into getting the role. Um, it's it, it's one of those things where um, I could definitely see him uh, producing a great solid snake. Absolutely, I don't, I don't think there's anything that I have watched him in that I haven't enjoyed. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, for now, that is where things stand. It could obviously change uh, again uh, because this production, this project, has changed a lot over the last right. decade. Yeah. I'm hoping this is the one that sticks. I, um, every everything that it's saying it could be is ticking the boxes that I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with Oscar Isaac, it's, I agree. It's one of those things where I hadn't really thought about who would make a great snake. But when it was announced, I was like, yep, 100% and behind that. That sounds great. I think that it probably will happen. You know, I think um, video game films are being produced again at a higher rate. Um, some to decent success. Detective Pikachu, Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, decent successes from a returns perspective and from a ratings perspective, not bad at all either. You've got Uncharted coming up not too far away. Um, Next year we have the Resident Evil reboot. So again, if these films continue to be successful and the studios see that, um, it really wouldn't surprise me if they move on a franchise, especially Metal Gear Solid, which, you know, is a a name that everybody knows. It's a a household name, even today. Um, It'll be interesting to see what becomes of it, of course, and what they are forced to cut for what I guess will be a three-hour film. Um, it's going to be probably pretty long, but even then you're going to have to adjust it. But I'm, yeah, I'm very intrigued, especially now that I've played the game, to have it to compare it to. Um, Hopefully there won't be any kind of gimmicks, like, you know, the projector stops the film about <laughs> yeah, halfway through that's during what I the was boss fight, because you're gonna, everybody's going to leave the hall and then come back in in different seats. That's the only right. way the film can continue. <laughs> the guy just uh, who's put the the film in the projector is wearing a gas mask for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so let's wrap up. Um, this has been a long, hefty old podcast, but let's get some conclusions on the original Metal Gear Solid uh, show. And what's your your final thoughts on the original Metal Gear Solid? I mean, it's, it's got a legacy for a reason. It's clearly one of the games which I think defined the PlayStation 1. Mm. Uh, or actually, as my colleague Emery would shout at me, it's the PlayStation. You can't call it a PlayStation. <laughs> um, it's, it's a game that defined the PlayStation. It's mm. one which is much beloved by fans. Uh, it's something where it's really, really easy to see uh, the legacy of it and see why it is that so many people liked it even now. Um it's it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination and i think there's been yeah there there are various different things that people could say about the series itself but this game this game is tremendous and i i thoroughly recommend anybody who hasn't played it to go out and just find a way of encountering it whether that be watch a youtube playthrough whether that's be play it yourself mm-hmm. um and the preference is def- should definitely be play it yourself the biggest part of this game and one of the reasons why i feel I'm interested to see where a movie goes is the actual journey of playing it. Right. And that's why you can't, that's why you can't explain it to anybody else when you try to explain the plot or the different intricacies of what Mm. different characters are doing or saying or anything else. The whole thing is immersion. The whole thing is the sensation of what it is to play again, to play the game, the innovations, the sort of breaking the fourth wall, 
every every part of that is geared towards you as a player, a player and experience. Absolutely. Uh, Adam, what are your final thoughts on the original Metal Gear Solid? Man, Sherwin just said it better than I could ever say it. Um, <laughs> yeah, he does that sometimes. You know, it's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a classic. It's a classic mm. for a reason. Um, and it's still just as playable and enjoyable today as it ever was, I believe. Um, mm. I it's It's just part of... There are a handful of games that I feel are part of the very fabric of gaming. Um, and I feel that Metal Gear Solid is one of those games. And I think that if you've never played it, you owe it to yourself to go and play it. Because I think truly it's a game that almost everyone can enjoy. Mm. Um, you know, if you take the time to familiarize yourself with how to play it, which doesn't take too long, um, then I think it's, it's definitely worthwhile and you'll get a lot out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say just going back to the, the kind of movie idea, Jordan said he'd never seen anything bad about Oscar Isaac. And I'll say you must've never seen X-Men apocalypse <laughs> because that was freaking awful. That doesn't count. Great. That doesn't count. He was blue. He was in makeup. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Frankly, it doesn't even look like him. I'm not even sure it was actually him. <laughs> did, you even, did you even read the credit? I didn't. I, didn't I, I, I ran yeah, out I will, of the cinema. I will agree that I think that he is um, a great casting choice. Absolutely great. Mm. I'll I'll hold my reservations on it because it's a movie game, a move, a, sure. a game movie, movie game. Yeah. yeah. I, I I'll I'll reserve judgment until I see it, but I will go see it. Hundred so. percent. But yes, uh, outside of that, Metal Gear Solid, if you haven't played it before and you're listening, find a way to play it. Uh, Jordan, final thoughts on MGS? Well, it's been 22 years since it came out and it still, you know, casts quite a, a great sort of not shadow, but uh, uh, image across uh, the, mm. the whole Metal Gear series. Uh, you know, ever since that game, just about everything uh, about Metal Gear Solid has had to kind of relate back to it in some kind of way. Um, it is it is iconic, um, and it's it's one of those kind of games that came along and almost kind of like disrupted the sort of the the, the trend of appeal with with the series, kind of a bit like Symphony of the Night with Castlevania, um, where it just it just kind of stands out um, as something almost entirely different to what came before it. Um, and it, it's it's there for a reason because it's it's still um, a fantastic game. Sure, I think some aspects of it have not aged as gracefully, um, but it's surprising how well it kind of holds up. Um, the fact is that people are still asking for yet another remake of this game, mm. and not necessarily right. because they feel like it needs to be modernized. It's more that they just absolutely love uh, Shadow Moses. And the events that happened there and the memories that were created there, uh, that they want to kind of see it again in a whole new perspective. Um, I've never met anybody who has played Metal Gear Solid and don't come away with something um, to at least admire, if not to absolutely adore. And, you know, maybe wax lyrical over for a two-hour podcast. <laughs> 
absolutely. And to that end of the impact of MGS1, you just made me think. Um, the Smash Brothers representation, you know, it's Solid Snake and Shadow Moses is there, Metal Gear Rex in the background. You can call everyone on the codec when depending on who you're fighting and they'll talk to you about that. You know, the sheer love of MGS that's in Smash Brothers as well. And that's that's that MGS1 cast, you know, that you get to talk to Otacon and, and Campbell and stuff like that. So, yeah, the legacy of MGS1 is, is huge. Steve, what are your final thoughts on the game? How do we, like, say what I'm going to say without treading over what everyone else has already said. Um, I know, right? <laughs> 1998 was a pivotal moment for video games. Mm. Okay, like, we have Half-Life, we have Resident Evil 2, and, you know, the, like, the, the, the third seat at the table is Metal Gear Solid. Like, these games changed how games were after the fact. Like, people, like, we've already said this, you know, games after Metal Gear Solid were fundamentally changed. The, the, the cinematic presentation was now a big deal. A narrative was having it was now a, uh, a much more of a big deal. You know, having cohesive writing, allegedly sometimes, is having a great <laughs> big deal now. Mm. Uh, the, the the fact that villains are no longer one note, you know, characters that don't say anything and just have a giant throbbing eyeball, you know, occasionally, I think is in part due to this game. Like you know, developing the actual cast of characters, making you empathise with them. It's a real strength and like everyone has said yes it has in fact stood the test of time it's definitely a game that's still playable hmm. i would argue newer players might struggle with the fact that if you're playing with a uh, computer you have to use the keyboard in one particular boss fight <laughs> and it is complete and utter get that swear sensor button out horse yeah. um <laughs> <laughs> so if you can get it on PSN like the, the PS1 original version of Metal Gear Solid is definitely worth your time I would recommend that everyone at least plays it once a year I certainly do and I'm a big Resident Evil fan so yeah, that's, that's a lot when you know, most of the time playing this game we're shooting zombies you know what I'm saying <laughs> um, but no it's a fun time if you haven't played it you're missing out why are you listening to a Metal Gear podcast and you haven't played it yet Come yeah, on. Get, get going, get there, going. Is, there is that yeah um, <laughs> yeah 1998 let me just point out 1998 not just Metal Gear Solid not just Resident Evil 2 not just Half-Life but Ocarina of Time Pokemon Red and Blue Grim Fandango um, you know we also have Tomb Raider 3 came out that year Marvel vs. Capcom Sonic Adventure personal favourite of mine um, huge year for games Banjo-Kazooie was 98 right? I think you might be right yeah um, Starcraft as well Baldur's Gate if I didn't say that it's just um, absolute stonker of a year. Um, God, do you know what? I feel like Metal Gear Solid. It's in the contender for top three without question. Um, I knew that I was missing out on not playing this for years. I I knew I did. I just it never happened. I just never had the chance, especially not to play. You know, original hardware and everything like that. So to get a a pristine copy of my friend and sit in front of my slimline PS2. Okay, it's not a PlayStation, original PlayStation, but close enough. Um, and actually play it through, finally. Uh, everyone has said it already. It's amazing how well this game holds up in practically every regard. Uh, yeah, I adore it. I had a great time. Even all my issues with Metal Gear X aside um, and the frustrations that I had... Uh, I was like, yeah, I can't wait to talk about this game. And it's been a great time dissecting this absolute monster. Um, 
I agree. If you haven't played it, like me, definitely play it. And then when you're done with that, you obviously get to make the choice of what you do next. Um, opinions vary on what comes next, but I have two and I have three and I have four on the shelf. So I guess we can start now. <laughs> now I've played the first game, I can play through the series. So I, maybe I'm playing MGS2 in 2021. Who knows? But yeah, um, absolutely worth your time. So... That is the Pile of Shame episode 2. Thank you everyone for voting. Nothing else remains for me but to thank our contributors and our Patreons once again. Support the show for as little as $1 a month to help us create more bonus content like this one over at patreon.com forward slash Pod. You can also join the Discord server to get in touch with the members of the team and our community, discuss Resident Evil with us and other fans and listen to the podcast live as it's recorded. You can find a link to the server as well as our Twitter, Facebook, Twitch, Instagram, YouTube and more over at fasebraypod.com. You can find the podcast on YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify and iTunes. And if you enjoyed the show, please do leave us a review if you can. It helps spread the word. Our next bonus episode has already been voted on. Um, and at the time that this comes out, I'm pretty sure I know what it is. Uh, we're going to be talking about a George A. Romero classic, Dawn of the Dead, the original version and the 2004 remake as well. Thank you to the panel. You can follow all of the Pueblo people individually. I'm at Sinyak underscore one, two, three. Steve is at FB Steve was taken. Jordan is at Serialbox64. Sherwin is at Sherwin's Agenda. Adam's at AdVickers01. And James is at MoistOwlerOFF. And finally, thank you for listening and have a good week.